about that. Right, excellent. So good morning. It's 9.30 and time for us to open the stage one hearing sessions of the examination. My name's Elaine Worthington and next to me is Louise Crosby. We are the inspectors appointed by the Secretary of State under Section 20 of the Planning and Compulsory Purchase Act 2004 to carry out the independent examination of the Uttlesford local plan. Most people will have spoken to Louise Sinjin Howe, the Programme Officer for the Examination, dealing with administrative matters. So she is your first point of contact if you have any queries about the procedures for the hearing sessions or the examination generally. So a few housekeeping points. Can everyone turn the mobile phones off or have them on silent, please? Are the press present today? Nope. Um, there are audio recordings of the sessions taking place, which means it's important for everyone to use their microphones and speak clearly into them. Um, if you could also, if you haven't been introduced when you start to speak, if you could say your name and where you're from, that helps people listening at home to know and be able to follow the dialogue. Um, I think everyone should know where the toilets are. There's, there's one on the back of the corridor and there's some downstairs. There's tea and coffee at breaks in a room on the back corridor out there. Um, Oh, and fire exits, uh, following the green signs at the back of there. That was the extra thing. Okay, our role in conducting the examination is to determine whether the submitted plan satisfies relevant legal and procedural requirements under the 2004 Act as amended and the 2011 Localism Act and associated regulations. The guidance notes explain more about the examination. We have identified a number of matters and issues for this stage of the hearings which will be investigated taking account of representations, representations made on the plan. The hearing sessions today will be based on those matters and issues, and there's also agenda been produced. The sessions are open to the public to observe, but only participants around the table are able to speak. Also, the hearing sessions are, are not an opportunity for participants to introduce new points that were not included in their responses to the Council's consultation at the end of last year. The sessions this week will, set, will, be, will, will start as set out on the programme and agendas, although I've got a little change to that that I'll run through at the end. We're going to have a mid-morning break today at half past 10 to 10.45 because there's a wedding taking place next door, so we're trying to avoid guests coming in and out. Um, so the first break will be 10.30, and then we intend to have another one at 11.45 till 12. Then we'll break for lunch at 1 till 2. Um, and then there'll be an afternoon break. I haven't been advised of afternoon weddings, so we'll, we'll play that one by ear. Um, there's a lot of people here. Um, we need to stress, really, that if you could be seated and ready to start the sessions at the allocated time so that we're not running over. Um, the hearing sessions will be a relaxed and informal discussion, focusing on the particular matter in hand. Um, we've got the agendas, um, which have been produced in light of the statements produced both by the council and other parties. Um, we will be asking a series of questions and asking the council and others to contribute as appropriate. Everyone will, given, will be given adequate opportunity to speak if you wish to do, to, do so. If you do, um, can you turn your nameplate upwards and if you're near the back you might have to lift it for us to see. If you, if you haven't got a nameplate, could you get one? There's some missing off the front. We won't, we won't know who to say. Um, and if you have, can you turn it so that we can see it? Thank you. Uh, we are aware that some participants may not 
be used to such events. We will we'll ensure that everyone is able to contribute and make their case. Um, as we discussed yesterday, there were a number of new and additional documents that have been come in since the previous hearings. If you're, if you're referring to those today, you might need to take us quite specifically to, to where you are because we haven't had full chance to consider them in their entirety. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've made a change to the programme today to accommodate some participants. Um, so we've moved Eastern Park to the end of the, end of the day. Um, so the agenda will be as on the participants list, which means it's North Uttlesford first, followed by Western Braintree and then Eastern Park at the end, whenever that comes up today. Um, I think that's all I've got on opening. Um, I think the council may want to provide a, an update before we move to matter eight. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, we're just getting no nameplates for, for the two people on the end here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I wanted to provide an update on the notes provided late on Monday, the note on the trajectory. It's been pointed out to us that there are uh, some errors have, have crept into the, the Appendix 2. Um, uh, I'd like to apologise uh, for those errors creeping in uh, because of the the, the rush nature of the work Monday afternoon. Um, the errors that, that have been pointed out to us are that the second table on that um, on that sheet, the, the top row um, in, includes two, uh, it doesn't match the rows below it, so actually should be two boxes, two columns over to the right. So instead of developments... <coughs> Development in Eastern Park and North Uttlesford starting in 25-26, that, that row there should say 23-24, and, and similarly all, all the rows should be two over to the right, uh, matching the text in, in the statement. Um, to the left, do you mean? Left. Right, no, because at the moment 23-24 is there, and it should be two to the oh, right. Sorry, oh, all right. I'm moving the top row. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, yes, the bottom rows should be moved to the left. Um, alternatively, you can move the top to the right one and the bottom to the left one. Um, the other error that uh, appears to have crept in is in the top part of that table. Um, the garden community, communities column, uh, rows, apologies, um, doesn't match that table below, which, which it should do. So that, that bottom row there of, of the total for the garden communities, 100, 150, 330, 405 on that bottom table, of, is what should be in that row there, summing to 4190, not um, the, the 3890 that, that, that is in there. So the figures are correct, it's just that they haven't been added up properly? That... Yes, the, the apologies, the rush nature of the work meant that there, some errors crept in there, that the overall figure of, of 14, just over 14,000 is, is uh, correct. Would, would it help, Madams, if we produced a corrected version that yeah. would then go onto the website? Because obviously people here have heard what Mr Miles has said, but there are obviously people who were here yesterday and others who won't have done. Yeah, because if you look, maybe it's just because I'm just looking at it quickly here, but if you look at the, so the white box, I don't, I don't mind, white and then like a purpley pink colour too, so there's a top box and a bottom table um, so the top table it's got garden communities and I presume that's the total in each year going across 
But then if you look, presumably that's supposed to tally with the dark box at the bottom of the second table. That, that's, that's correct, yes. Because it, it says 100, 150, that's right. And then the next box says 330, but the, the table above says 250. Yes, the, the bottom uh, line is, is the correct one and should be uh, in, in the top row as well. Right, so the top row, the numbers across are incorrect in the top but, box as well. Right, okay, yeah. I thought it was just the, the total that was wrong. Right, so we'll just kind of ignore all of that line for now and use the bottom totals. We'll provide a, a, an updated correct version. Okay, when would you be able to do that by? Uh, well, potentially today, but I don't want to do it so quickly that we don't catch all, no. the, all the errors I want to... It would be ideal if somebody could be doing it in the background in the office somewhere so that we yeah. can have it as soon as possible. Well, I'm about to switch seats with, with someone else, so I, I right. will go upstairs and, and make sure that that happens. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Anything else? I think, is this working now? Yeah. yeah. Must, I must have the magic voice. <laughs> oh, we swapped, didn't we? Yeah, that's why it's... Oh, yeah, you yeah, are swapped, yeah. Well. Um, okay, that was all you wanted to cover. Right, okay. So, moving to um, matter eight, as Ms Worthington says, um, we're going to deal with North Uttlesford first, so slightly out of um, order of the, on the agenda. What I was going to suggest is that question one and two are kind of overlapping and I wonder if we'd be better dealing with question one and two together. That doesn't mean to say you can't cover, we can't cover things outside of heritage and landscape impact, but I think that's probably the, the bulk of probably what people want to talk about today. Does anybody have any particular problems with me doing that? No? Okay. So... Don't come around the table. Oh, she's not here today. So we've got the um, the plan that was submitted yesterday as well by um, it's your colleague Miss Hutton, isn't it? Yes. yes. I was just looking. Oh, she's there. <laughs> Couldn't see where she was. I saw you come in this morning. So we've got. It might be useful just to flag up that we've got that that was submitted yesterday, which provides the um, the contours of the site on top of the. Um, the layout, sort of the master plan uh, of the site as it, as it stands at the moment. So if anybody's not got a copy of that, maybe one or two around if we need them. Do you, do you have any spares, Miss Hutton, if we need them? Okay, just in case, so that people can kind of understand when... Is there anybody not got that document? No? Okay, oh, probably okay. So... Um, I've got a few questions, but I suspect they'll be kind of covered um, by other people's um, comments. So probably the easiest thing is to allow people to start speaking, um, express their concerns or the changes that they're seeking. And obviously we'll bring the council in as well um, as we go along. Um, there is um, the um, EDP Archaeology and Historic England, uh, sorry, Hist Archaeology and Historic Landscape Appraisal appended to um, Bidwell's statement as well, which might uh, presume Heritage England have seen that. Yeah, okay, that's fine. So is there anybody particularly wants to speak first? Obviously, nameplates on end. If...
Okay, Ms. Mack. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Debbie Mack from Historic England. Um, uh, myself and my colleague, uh, Debbie Priddy, the Inspector of Ancient Monuments, um, I gave her trailer for her yesterday. She's come here <laughs> to give... Um, she said some, nice things about it. I did. It was all good. Um, some detailed um, advice, really, um, in relation to the historic environment. But I'm going to start off um, in relation to question one, really, um, and just consider this question of whether the 5,000 dwellings... Um, is there, is there evidence to demonstrate that the site is capable of 5,000 dwellings. Now, obviously, the site promoters have produced their um, illustrative master plan, and whilst we know that that's not the subject of this EIP, that we're looking at the local plan instead, um, it is helpful in demonstrating that physically you could fit 5,000 dwellings on that site, um, occupying approximately half the site. Um, so we're not contesting that. Our concern is much more to do with the impact of that development on the historic environment, as you've heard me say already yesterday. Now, in our view, the heritage sensitivity of the site has not been adequately factored into the developable area of the site. Um, and moreover, we consider that it's an inappropriate location in the first place for a garden community. I'm going to ask Debbie Priddy now to explain a little bit more about the importance of the area and why we think um, that it's an inappropriate location. Good morning. I'm Deborah Priddy, Historic England. Um, I'm really just going to expand very slightly on what we've said in our statement about the, um, about the area. Um, in terms of historic landscape, it's a, a visually continuous and open landscape, very typical of the East Anglian chalk. Today it has few woods and trees, and sparse hedge lines, and relatively few but broad straight roads with, settled, with small settlements in the valleys. And the landscape has been open for some time. Archaeological work um, in the area suggests, as it does for, for many parts of East Anglia, that the open nature of the landscape has been in existence since prehistory. The relative lack of development means that the, um, uh, our understanding of settlement archaeology in these rural areas is, is not evenly understood but clearly the existence of the settlement and the fort and town at Great Chesterford at the crossing point of the River Cam and linear boundaries such as the Brent Ditch and the other major um, uh, linear earthworks to the, to, to the north of, this, of the study area suggests that the control of routeways such as the prehistoric Igneal Way through this landscape has been a defining factor in the settlement at Great Chesterford and the way in which it operates within that landscape. As I say, relatively little um, excavation has taken place, um, but where um, interventions are being made because of a development, then elements of the prehistoric and post-Roman landscape are beginning to be identified, such as the, um, the um, putative Henge monument and Anglo-Saxon burials to the, to, to the north the settlement of Great Chesterford is considered to have its origins in the late Iron Age, and indeed the origin of the Roman temple is also in, um, in the pre-conquest period. The first century fort was absorbed into a developing settlement, and um, the town continued um, and was walled in the 4th century, though the temple goes out of use, or appears to go out of use, um, earlier than, than that. In the late Roman and post-Roman period, we've yet to understand the extent to which there is any continuity of settlement, but the existence of Anglo-Saxon cemeteries um, uh, su suggests that they're going to be 
um, settlements that go with those, those cemeteries reasonable to think that they're going to be in the vicinity. The medieval settlement pattern is um, uh, characterised by, by, by small nucleated villages um, set within agricultural open landscape um, with occasional moated sites, manor houses and parks um, reflecting the higher strata of the population. In terms of the setting of the, shed, of the Roman temple, the, the um, scheduled monument in relation to the application site, um, the, 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 the relationship, the visual relationship between the Roman temple and the town um, can be clearly um, seen from, uh, they're clearly indivisible from, from between each other in, in, in views. And um, the, the, the grain of the landscape is, is, very, is, is small scale rather than dramatic. Um, and therefore, um, one of our concerns is that the, um, the intervention of major development into this landscape will be of a, um, a nature and of a um, character and a, a magnitude that, that will be very harmful to um, the appreciation, the, exper the experiential setting of the scheduled monument. Um, turning to the potential for archaeology, for uh, further archaeology within the um, uh, allocation site, um, the, the, the proposed dwellings would occupy some 50% of the site, um, but um, large-scale evaluation exercises in, in northwest Essex, notably at Stansted Airport, field walking um, programs there produced a, uh, something like two, uh, 2.4 sites per hectare. And um, on the route of the A120 west of Braintree, um, that it was three sites, uh, three sites uh, within every kilometre, um, 54 sites, one of national importance, two regional and, 50, and 51 local. So I think um, the, um, one might expect a very large number of new sites to be identified within the um, allocation area, particularly given the topographical relationship of the, of the site and the proximity of, of the Iron Age settlement and, and the Roman and post-Roman town. There's absolutely no reason to assume that as yet unrecorded sites will only be of local importance and that there is very low potential the sites of national importance to be present in this landscape. The importance of early archaeological evaluation of the site, should the allocation be accessible, must be stressed so that development is an iterative process informed by a thorough understanding of the site's archaeological potential, which we assess as being very high. Um, and Historic England and the local planning authority's archaeological advisor um, have stressed on a number of occasions, including on a site visit, the need to undertake some systematic archaeological evaluation at the earliest stage um, since the inception of, of the proposals. Um, and this is contrary to a comment made in um, uh, the Bidwell's document on, on, on our um, statement of case. Um, EDP also suggests that excavation rather than preservation uh, was, was a, a, a choice um, uh, made in relation to the Anglo-Saxon Cemetery and Henge development excavated recently. And in fact, these were unexpected discoveries which only came to light after topsoil stripping had begun. 
and therefore, um, particularly with the burials, this was a pragmatic decision rather than one that demonstrated an acceptance of the uh, of, of excavation over preservation as a preferred strategy. Um, and for these reasons, that this does not support the proposition that all buried archaeological remains that might be discovered could be acceptably mitigated by archaeological excavation. The National Planning Policy Framework is clear in paragraph 141 that the ability to record evidence of the past should not be a factor in deciding whether such loss should be permitted. It serves to underline the importance at appropriate level of um, understanding of the archaeological potential of the site um, is, um, takes place and, and that um, avoidant, the avoidance of harm in the first place is much to be preferred. So Debbie has set out for us very clearly the, the importance of the area as a whole in terms of uh, the historic environment. Um, more, to summarise, although there aren't um, that many designated assets on, within the site boundary, there's the Park Farmhouse and the Roman uh, Celtic Temple, um, the scheduled monument, and the non-designated Deer Park, um, there are a plethora of other heritage assets very nearby. Um, and this palimpsest in the landscape is really, really key. We know from the MPPF that significance to heritage assets can be harmed by development within the setting of a heritage asset. And partly due to the particular topography of the site, development of a new settlement on the higher ground, prominent in the landscape, would have an impact on the significance of these assets and the wider historic environment as a whole, eroding that rural landscape. And that is why we maintain our in-principle objection to this site. Now, we've seen the heritage impact assessment coming forward, and that's, um, as I said yesterday, we were very much um, very grateful to um, Uttlesford for commissioning that work and an ind independent study of it. But that, that um, uh, evolution of that document was not without, um, without its challenges and issues along the way. Um, the Regulation 19 plan, as you know, was only influenced by a draft of that HIA. Um, and despite our continuing asking for the revisions to that um, HIA, um, particularly for the North Uttlesford site, we never saw that until the 23rd of January, um, the day before the plan was submitted to yourselves. And um, it was sent to us late in the afternoon after uh, the council knew I had finished work for the week. And so we never commented on that final draft before it was before you. And as I said before, and in my hearing statements, um, we do have some concerns with that HIA and some of its findings. Um, so, so we set that before you. And so by allocating the site, Historic England considers that the local authority has failed to take sufficient account of the HIA to avoid and minimise harm, as is required in the MPPF at 129. Um, it's failed to attach great weight to the conservation of heritage assets, as is required at paragraph 132 of the MPPF. And it's failed to have regard to the desirability of preserving the setting of affected listed buildings and conserving and enhancing the conservation areas, um, as is prescribed in the Act. And so we consider that in MPPF terms, the plan is not sound because it's not justified in terms of the impacts upon the historic environment um, and has not sought reasonable alternatives. That was the point we were making yesterday about the issue of looking for an alternative site when it became very clear that there were significant heritage impacts on this um, site, that, is not in, that, is in, that it is ineffective in terms of avoiding harm and delivering enhancements to the historic environment. And it's inconsistent with national policy 
in terms of conservation and enhancement of the historic environment. Now, setting aside our fundamental concerns, as you know, we do continue to work with Uttersford. Um, We are working on revised policy wording. Um, uh, The initial versions of that are beginning to appear in the uh, proposed modifications, um, although I would say that there's still work to do on that. Um, We would also say that we do have some concerns about uh, the uh, document that was posted on the website on Monday, um, examination document 45, which includes some revised wording um, agreed between the site promoter and the council, um, which um, talks about... Let me just find it. Uh, It it talks about the need for the... um, bullet point to be changed to say that, uh, to refer to a heritage impact assessment submitted with an application. Can you just, um, just turn yep, that document? Yep, do, that's fine. It's the planning stage of common ground. Yes. That's right, yes. <laughs> Somewhere in the, in the mountain. Okay, so paragraph 6.4 of that is suggesting a change to clarify... Um, oh, hang on, no, I've not got the right document. That's okay. Six point. So st- ED40, did you say? 45. ED45. Right, like sorry. That. Which one is it? Have we not... Well, we do, I think. Whether I'm wrong or Ms. Oh, Max that's wrong. possible. It says 45 oh, on the website. Right, but... like, like I said, I'm wrong. Thank you. <laughs> Is it that? No, that's that. That's that one I've got, isn't it? Uh, is it? Is it? Is it the one that? Do you want to have a look at my copy? We'll probably be able to get. I think we've only got it electronically, but I can try. And There's been it. problems with the documents this All week, and some not come in and some... All you need to know is that a paragraph 6.4, there's some suggested wording right. that talks about um, helping to clarify the meaning of the term HIA, which I think is a reasonably good idea to clarify that. Um, which HIA do we mean? Um, but here it's talking about, uh, their proposed revised wording is talking about an HIA submitted with an application. I think our view is that having gone to the trouble of preparing a full HIA, the Donald Insull Associates HIA, we would expect there to be reference to that HIA um, in any proposed mitigation and for measures to have regard to that, um, not just some new evidence um, if we aren't happy with the old evidence, if that makes sense. So we will be, um, as we're preparing the Statement of Common Ground with um, Uttersford, we'll be making that point. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I think a couple of the documents were encrypted, so we couldn't get them open and printed. And it's, uh, it's on the email, but we haven't... Yes, so if we need to refer to it again, we've got it on an email. Um, have you finished speaking yet? I think so. I think you've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Belton, I think. 
Thank you, ma'am. Um, I have um, comments uh, to address your first question, particularly the text in brackets, which is the evidence that this site can deliver 1,925 dwellings within this plan period. And to be honest, my comments um, are equally relevant to all three garden communities, if I'm honest. So um, I'm speaking now because North Attleswood goes first, rather than that being the focus of my attention. Um, but if I may, I will just walk you through my concerns, and then it will save me sort of doing it on, on three occasions today. Exactly, and if I need to emphasise further points later on, I will, but I suspect um, you'll, you'll get the gist of where I'm heading. Um, so my comments are going to refer to document ED30, which is the Council's response to um, your questions AA6 and AA7, uh, which was um, supplementing the trajectory of how the garden communities are likely to come forward. And um, specifically, I'm going to be referring to Appendix 1 of that document, which is the table that the Council have very helpfully put together, which kind of walks us through the assumptions of how we get from where we are today to um, dwellings being delivered on site. Um, now, I don't propose to go through that um, in um, sort of line-by-line -line detail, but um, in the Council statement, they say that the trajectory is challenging, but in their view, realistic. Um, we would agree it's challenging and we have concerns that it is not realistic and not sound. Um, and we say that for the reasons that the revised trajectory is setting out how um, different elements of um, the promotion of these sites will be twin-tracked. So you have um, the preparation of the DPD being twin-tracked with the consideration of this plan. The DPD time period then taking a little over two years, which we've already spoken about briefly, but that is um, an incredibly quick turnaround in our view. Uh, the Council will say it's possible, looking at other examples, but it is incredibly, incredibly quick, and there's very little flex in that programme, that if there are issues that emerge either before or indeed during the examination, uh, then th the whole timetable will start to slip. Uh, that trajectory also assumes that the outline applications are developed alongside the DPD and are in place to be approved very shortly after the DPDs are found sound uh, and adopted. Again, that doesn't leave any flex that if there are problems in the DPD process or any changes that need to be made to the outline application. Um, so it really is the you know, best case scenario that we're looking at here. Once you've got through the outline application, there's then an incredibly rapid turnaround to get to submitting reserve matters applications. Um, the trajectory that the Council have put together doesn't seem to reflect the likely scenario whereby parcels of land are going to have to be marketed uh, to house builders. Um, and it kind of assumes that one will just roll from a, an outline application be approved to preparing reserve matters, where in reality I suspect there will be at least a six-month period where house builders are... Um, going through the process of purchasing plots and they're very unlikely to twin track the preparation of reserve matters until they know that their position on that site is, is secured. Um, but I think my fundamental concern is not sort of taking this on an individual garden community site basis but actually what you're being asked I think in the council's latest submission is to find this trajectory sound for all three garden communities. So all three are going to go through the same process almost at the same time. Um, and in simplified terms, I think we're almost being asked to sign up to a strategy that requires us to hit the bullseye 
um, on three separate occasions simultaneously, and I think that's incredibly unlikely. Um, there will be delays and there will be challenges, and the problem is that you're going to end up with a trajectory that ends up slipping. And I think what's really important in this case, and it kind of goes back to what Mr. Dixon said in week one, is that the way the trajectory is set up is that post-2023, you actually have very little growth happening in other sites. Now, you remember Mr. Dixon kind of walked us through the trajectory page by page, and I think he concluded that there was um, about 10 sites only that would be delivering any housing post-2023. And just quickly skimming through that again this morning, I think you'll find that you know, there's probably only five sites post-2023 that are going to deliver in excess of 50 dwellings. So we are going sort of all in with this garden community strategy. And if there is any uh, delay on any or all of the sites, then the trajectory is, is going to be left uh, in, in serious doubt. Um, and sort of the words echoing in my mind from week one are the, the, the comments of the Saffron Walden Town Council, who spoke, I thought, very eloquently about the concerns they've had recently about growth in Saffron Walden, which has been planning application-led because the council haven't had a five-year supply. And the problems that has generated for the town in its inability to, to plan effectively for infrastructure. Um, and our view is that the trajectory that we're being asked to sign up to here is so optimistic that you're just going to be incredibly likely to find yourself back in that position where there is a five-year housing land supply shortage because the delivery of these sites just can't keep up. Um, so we don't have a problem with the garden community concept. Um, we think it's got a very important role to play in the, in the local plan. Um, but we do question whether the council have, have got their trajectory assumptions correct. And we, we think there should be either um, additional sites allocated to give them flexibility or added um, flexibility around some of the policies relating to open countryside, which I spoke about in week one. Um, but to do neither of those things, I think, leaves this strategy incredibly exposed and, in our view, doesn't pass the test of soundness. Thank you. Thank you. Back on any of those? Uh, Madam, I think we do want to come back on what uh, Historic England was saying, but just in relation to those matters uh, uh, um, from Mr. Belton, uh, clearly we don't want to regurgitate the discussion that we had about the five-year uh, land supply uh, discussions which were in week one and you know our position on that. I think just on a point of detail, uh, Mr. Belton said, well, it was trying to hit the bullseye, I think he said three times at the same time. Strictly that's not quite the position, as you know, that west of Braintree's trajectory is slightly different to the trajectory in relation to uh, North Uttlesford uh, and Eastern Park. Uh, and obviously that will impact on uh, the timescales for the preparation of their subordinate DPDs and then planning applications and so on. So it's not quite the position that was being uh, presented to you. But I mean, in terms of the general points, I think we've had the debate about that and you know the um, overall uh, position. <coughs> No, and again, in a sense, since um, last week, you also know there's a slightly updated position in terms of moving forward with uh, the uh, agreed position with Grosvenor 
uh, obviously the statement of common ground that we were having that slight discussion about earlier. So it's just that you've got the picture on that, and I think obviously you'll take a view uh, on um, the uh, um, uh, um, realism in, in, in a sense. So part of the context does have to be uh, that the reason why we're doing all of this is to meet housing needs. Uh, and there isn't, I think, any uh, sign, certainly from those who are, uh, as in Mr. Belton's position, promoting or urging on you uh, that there should be the release of additional sites, small-scale sites. There isn't any suggestion on, on the part of those participants that they don't believe the demand is there in order to support uh, the scale of housing which is proposed. And, and so, in a sense, there isn't any obvious reason for developers to faff around, if I can put it that term, at taking longer than is needed to to deliver the housing which is meeting identified needs. They are in a competitive marketplace themselves in terms of competing for sites, finding sites that they can bring forward and so on. And I say, uh, the idea that they're going to take a leisurely process to all of this is somewhat removed from the reality of the needs that are being sought to be met. But, so I say, putting those points then uh, um, in, in their place, they're turning more to the position in terms of uh, uh, the issues of principle, as it were, about North Uttlesford raised by Historic England. Um, I mean, it may be helpful to, to bring in for, for comments... Um, uh, and, and Mr. Gillam has got, in a sense, an over, overview on, on the heritage matters, but we've also got, in terms of our um, consultant team, if I can just briefly mention uh, who is here, um, Ms. Tiedman, who is from Donald Insull Associates, who dealt with the uh, HIA work, so can obviously talk you through uh, the detail of that. And then um, we've also brought in from CGMS... Uh, Mr. Flickcroft, who's got a particular uh, familiarity with archaeological uh, matters and maybe wants to comment on, on some of the points that were being raised by Ms. Priddy. Um, but obviously, you've seen what we said in our uh, matters statement uh, in relation to uh, the, uh, uh, the site uh, and its um, ability to accommodate uh, within uh, the overall scale of development sensitive areas and to have, as it were, areas which can be kept free from development, which will be relevant to the, to the setting uh, issues. Um, and I think perhaps just in terms of points on the MPPF, and obviously you, you're very familiar with the, the 2012 uh, MPPF uh, and its um, uh, advice, um, just a point to pick up on uh, in relation to, as it were, the undiscovered bits which uh, have been uh, um, uh, referenced. Um, and the, the advice at paragraph 139 uh, of the 2012 MPPF, uh, which relates to non-designated heritage assets of archaeological interest that are demonstrably of equivalent significance to scheduled monuments should be considered subject to the policies for designated heritage assets. And there was a suggestion, I think, in, in part of what Ms. Priddy was saying, is, well, we don't know what, as it were, 
quality of undiscovered archaeology there is, and therefore one can't assume that it's all of only local importance. But certainly my interpretation of that part of the advice is that for persons to contend that things which aren't designated should be assumed to be of equivalent importance to things which are of national importance, like the scheduled monument, that has to be demonstrated. It's, it's not enough to simply say, well, we don't know, therefore let's assume that it's all of national importance. Uh, paragraph 139 is very clear. You treat non-designated heritage assets in that elevated way if they are demonstrably of equivalent significance. Well, if you haven't found them and you don't actually know they exist, I'd suggest that you can't treat them as being demonstrated to be of equivalent significance. So then perhaps with those introductory remarks, can I perhaps bring in Ms. Tideman first? So do you want to just comment on uh, the overall work that was done and the conclusions reached and then um, bring in um, uh, Mr. Flickcroft on anything particular uh, in relation to the archaeology matters. Morning. Um, Karen Tideman Barrett from Donald Insel Associates, uh, Architects and Historic Building Consultants. Um, just like really to stand back and just outline our structured approach in carrying out this heritage impact assessment um, because it was a structured approach common across the three, the three sites, although I know we're addressing North Uttlesford at the moment. Um, our brief required um, assessments to be made for each site, um, defining the significance of the heritage assessments for both built heritage and for dated archaeology, the contribution of the settings to the significance of the heritage assets and to assess the impact of change or potential development. Um, so these assessments were made on a, based on an indicative uh, site area, which if found principle should inform future master planning work. So at this stage, we did not do our, carry out our assessment based on a master plan. Um, we carried out our assessments following Historic England guidance and the 2012 MPPF. We started by um, scheduling statutory listings and historic environment records um, across each of the sites. And then, crucially, we visited each site, visiting each um, heritage asset where access was possible um, from public highways. Um, in the case of North Uttlesford, because of the particular topography of this, the site, on, on the slopes, it has an impact on a wider um, area, so we took in that beyond the two kilometre area. From this we reduced um, the first extensive list to include assets that were considered to be most affected by potential development of the site. And then from this list we made individual assessments of the significance um, of each of those items. Now, conservation areas where, which are concentrated in the River Valley, in the case of North Uttlesford, we have concentrations of heritage assets, and in that case, we 
assessed those that had most impact, were found to be most impacted by this, the site. Um, from then, we sort of mapped our findings and compiled uh, plans that showed degrees of sensitivity across the site. Um, and because of the extensive uh, number of heritage assets in North Uttlesford, we divided our sensitivity maps into built heritage and to archaeology. Mr. Flickcroft will speak on the archaeology in due course. From that, from those sensitivity, uh, from that sensitivity guidance, we then compiled a development concept criteria, um, which is sort of a very diagrammatic map of that would inform possible future planning of any master plan on the site. So in the case of North Uttlesford, the Deer Park, which is a particularly enclosed area, although it retains its important historic boundaries of Ditch and Bank, it is an undesignated um, heritage asset, and we established that that would be a potential extent of least harm in an area. The topography informed the the grading of the rest of the site and it was found that the obviously the lower slopes which are very prominent in the landscape are highly sensitive including that around the Roman temple so I hope that just outlines our approach thank you that's helpful Mr. good morning it, uh, my name is Mike Fletchcroft I'm I've been brought into the project team at this late stage to provide some additional archaeological support for the council. I wasn't, I'd say, I was not involved with preparation of the Donald Insull HIA, but I have read the through the report and I've got no real comments to make on the on that. I've just got a couple of observations and comments to make on historic England's representations, and generally, I think the overview of the history and archaeology of the, of the area that that's, was pretty provided that's, that's fine I've got no, no objections to that I think it's quite a, it's a useful explanation of what is known on site the significance of the general area the issues to do with the intervisibility of the Roman temple and the Roman town and how they contribute to the setting of each other um, well, I think I would like to make a couple of comments is in relation to the potential for further archaeology on the site because as part of the allocation process obviously we need, um, there needs to be a proportionate evidence base which identifies the potential for further archaeology on the site. Um, and although I, I would share her advocacy and would agree it's very important that early evaluation of the allocated allocation site does take place. Um, I would say that this doesn't form part of the plan making process. This is something which is, well, is best addressed as part of the development management process or as part of the preparation of the site-specific development plan document. At the moment, we are looking at the principle of development on the site, and as has been accepted, the, I think they've said that physically you can fit 5,000 dwellings on here. The 
I would, from the council side, we would accept that there is further, is further unidentified archaeology yet to be found within the site. Um, but, and the, sorry, and the level of importance of that is currently unknown, although all the evidence which we have at the moment does not suggest that we have large extensive areas of nationally important archaeology which would be a major constraint to future development. There will be areas, I'm sure there will be areas of archaeology discovered and they will be managed through the development management process. But the key issue here is providing that information during the preparation of those applications, not, not, during, the, not during the allocation of the site. Um, we said there's no evidence that the site does not contain large areas of nationally important archaeology. Equally, there's no, there's no real suggestion that there are further large areas of nationally important archaeology within the site. Um, Could you just comment briefly on the point which I think Miss Pretty made as a, um, a statement she said in, in terms of approach. She said the intervention of major development into this landscape would be significantly harmful, that was her, I think, uh, categorization, to the experiential setting of the scheduled monument, uh, as it were, seemingly, however you did it, you would inevitably end up, she seemed to be suggesting, with significant harm to the setting uh, because of the nature of the development. I mean, just your take on, on that, obviously, there is a master plan, albeit that that's illustrative. It's not clearly that's not part of uh, what is in the local plan, but it's one way in which one could approach matters. What, what, what's your view on whether we're faced, in a sense, with an inevitability that whatever you did and however you planned it, uh, this is one where there would have to be accepted significant harm to the setting of the scheduled monument? I. I, I think I, quickly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree that whatever that there is an inevitable, unavoidable impact on the experiential setting, whatever, how, how the experiential setting, which I take to mean how the scheduled temple site within the site and the scheduled Roman town at Great Chester, but how those are experienced in the landscape. I don't feel that there is any. I don't feel that it is, in it, is, it is inevitable that, however you build, however the site is built out, there will be this significant impact on it. Um, in terms of the setting of the scheduled monuments, the, the key thing to remember is how does the setting contribute to the significance of the scheduled monument? How does the setting contribute to what makes a scheduled monument important. And it doesn't follow that the 360-degree views around it are of equal importance. I would say that the key issues are how the temple and the town relate to each other in landscape. The fact that you have the, the temple on the higher ground, the town on the lower ground, and they're sort of they can be they can be experienced between each other. Not, they can be experienced between each other. At the moment, they can't, there's no firm visual link. You can't look up from Great Chesterford and see 
see a temple, but you can say, you, you can look and think, oh yes, if you, if, you know, if, you know where, if you know where it was, you can think, oh yes, it was over there. So I think that the key aspect of the, set, of the setting and where I think there would be a, a, a substantial impact was if that perception of the linkage between the temple site and the town was, was broken by new development. However, development beyond that, on the, on the, on the slopes behind it, that's that will not affect the experience of the set of the setting in the same way, and would be you know, would be a far far would have far less impact, or arguably negligible impact, on the on the setting and the significance of the scheduled monuments. Just a, a couple of questions. Um, firstly, if work started to take place so it's likely for example there would need to be conditions on a planning application for watching brief that sort of um, thing of or, or possibly further investigative works before works began is that likely to delay development if, if something of either local or national significance was found the the straight answer to your question is if is if, if, if important remains were found in watching brief during the development program, development program itself, then that, would, that, would that delay development? Yes. But the whole thrust of the development strategy for this site is to avoid those sorts of mm. last-minute yes. discoveries, um, and which goes back to the point that Historical England are making about the importance of early and, com and systematic early evaluation so that areas of high archaeological value can be identified early in the process during the during the detailed design development during master planning even so that they can then be either planned so the, the impacts on them can either be planned out or where it is agreed that the planning balance is in favour of the development over conservation of the archaeology, that the requirements for further archaeological investigation can be identified at that early stage and planned in for by the developer so that we, the development can proceed without delays or without risks, without, without damage to the archaeological heritage. Okay, thank you, that's helpful. Do you think it's likely that there, be, there may be areas... Um that are of such importance that it couldn't be built upon and sometimes, um, well, often with archaeology, it doesn't prevent development, it's, it sort of slows it down or there may be need for extra costs in terms of um, either removing it or building in a certain way so that it can be kept in situ, etc. Is it likely to, uh, in your view, is there any areas that are likely to um, require no development at all so it would impact on the numbers of houses that could be built? Um, well, the, the obvious area, and which, has, which has already been identified within the HIA, is the scheduled area of the Roman Temple. You know, I think that's taken as given. That is an area which will not see any develop, which cannot see any development. And in fact, where the development of the site offers opportunities to enhance the monument by removing it from its current arable agriculture. Um, in terms of other areas within the site, none of the other known archaeological assets within the site are 
of such importance that they represent obvious, obvious major constraints. The, in terms of the risk of additional as yet undiscovered archaeology being, being found which could be a which might need to be avoided. Information is not clear. I mean, from the evidence base that we have at the moment, I think it's, I think we, it's reasonable to assume that there are not going to be extensive areas, areas such as you know, tens, hundreds, tens, fifties, hundreds of hectares that, of, of archaeology. And there's nothing to suggest that that sort of level of the site would be sterilised, for want of a better word. Um, when the as, as the evaluation of the site's potential takes place in those stages then there may be areas where um, preservation is a is a required option other areas where it might be a preferred option so at the moment there's no, no evidence to, set to be certain one way or another but the, all the indications are that it isn't it's not going to be large, large enough areas to prevent the, the principle. Okay, thank you. So what you're suggesting is ideally before planning application stage there is some more, um, more intrusive investigation, if you like, so some soil stripping exactly, yes. so that you could I mean, you can the, see kind of what's, what's below the, the surface. Yes. So you do some the, the, trialing of yeah, the sequence. I, the sequence I would anticipate would be that as as part of the um, evidence collection for the for initial outline application, there would be a site-wide program of archaeological evaluation involving non-intrusive surveys and areas of trial, excavation, trial, trenches. Again, just designed to evaluate this potential, take potential, work out exactly what archaeology there is, where and where, what level of importance it is and where its significance lies so that when the application is submitted, there's enough information there to allow the council to make a properly informed decision. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, just to round off really on a, a, a few things before handing back to uh, my colleague, uh, Michael Bedford. Um, so really to bring it back to the plan making, it needs to be emphasised that we're looking at the high level principle of acceptability and we've heard a proportionate methodology, maps of sensitivity divided into heritage and archaeology and there's been extensive work on non-designated assets. And I'm sure the inspectors will be aware that MPPF requires local authorities, encourages local authorities, but doesn't require local authorities to look at non-designated assets. But the council has worked very hard indeed with Historic England to try and make sure that the significance of those are recognised proportionately at this level of, of plan making. The HIA includes mitigation approaches which are again appropriate to the level of plan making 
and the council has been working very hard with Historic England on policies which bring all those things in to the plan and the council continues to do that and is open to any further po uh, main modification that would assist soundness. And it's also worth mentioning, of course, which has been referred to many times, that the, the DPD will add an appropriate layer before any planning application uh, comes in. And those that's already written into the uh, main mods in the policies, and I'm sure we'd be open to any suggestion on any further mods. It's just coming up to half past ten and we need to avoid clashing with the wedding. So, um, so suggest we take a short break and then come back. So we've got to be back in by quarter to eleven so that we don't clash with the wedding party. So. And we do. <laughs> yes, I appreciate that. Uh, that that's fine, yes. Um, no, I won't forget you. Okay. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. 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 Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Which is on. Yes. Is that better? Right. Um, just to go back to um, the, uh, to the matter of um, buried archaeology, um, the points I made were that the, the area is one of high sensitivity, and that therefore there must be a, um, a, a, an expectation that, that the archaeological potential of the allocation site is extremely high. We simply do not know what the archaeological 
um, uh, uh, potential is, because there has been no evaluation, um, that, 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 is a, that is a matter of fact. Now, clearly, the framework says that when considering planning applications, um, there's a, a, there needs to be a sufficient evidence base to, um, uh, you know, to, to understand what the impact will be on, on buried archaeological remains, which would include um, field evaluation. There are non-invasive means of, of, of evaluation um, which arguably might be carried out at an earlier stage and on, and on a site like the, such as field walking or, or geophysical survey, for example. But the, but the point is that, that we cannot know and that the expectation must be that the potential is very high. And therefore, that's why I referred to, one, to a couple of um, uh, major projects in the vicinity where, indeed, that proved to be the case. There were a considerable number of unknown sites. We cannot say whether they will be of local, regional, or national importance. But yet again, the location is sensitive. The archaeological, um, what we know of the archaeological um, uh, development of the area suggests that, that it's highly likely that there will be a lot of archaeology and that some of it may be of, of maybe of a potentially of national importance, but we won't know that. It's true, but it but it does it does bear on whether whether we you know we can actually say with certainty that that the that the how that the development can be accommodated. Um, just so so you're suggesting that I don't you, do you, do you, could you just turn yours off while I speak because <laughs> then it goes the gets quieter as it as there's two one. Um, are you suggesting then that some further work should be done before the plan is adopted? I'm, I'm just making the point that, um, that, that without such work, it's impossible to, it's impossible to say. Um, and I, and um, we, we accept that, um, you know, we accept that, uh, that, that split is about 50-50 is about between um, uh, land where um, there would be widespread... Um, earth, earth moving um, excavations, um, whether that's for housing or, 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 for, or for various other various other parts of the, the settlement, such as um, recreational sports pitches and things like that. These these things, although they're green, also require groundworks. So, but but you know, so there so there are obviously there obviously is a, um, a land to, to to play with, but it's at this point in time. We just we, we don't know what is there, or how it how it would fit in with either the master plan that's been proposed or, or um, uh, future master plans. And clearly, you know, um, an iterative approach to the development of master planning and archaeological evaluation would would be very would be very sensible. Ms. Hutton, and then I'll sort of work my way then to Mr. Kowski. Thank you, Mum. In terms of answering questions one and two, um, our case is, is, is threefold in terms of heritage, landscape, and transport. Um, given what's been said by Historic England today, we're not going to repeat any of that. We simply say we agree. I'll make a couple of very short points. Would it be helpful for us to then go on to transport and landscape now, or would you prefer to go around the room on the heritage? No, I'm happy to take that now. Thank you. 
Well, just may I make a short point on, on, on heritage and the general point that Historic England are a statutory consultee and therefore significant weight uh, must be given to their views um, unless essentially there's, there's good sound reasons uh, not to. And we would say there's no, there's no sound good reason in this case. And particularly, and that, that relates to the entirety of their response, but in view of the hidden archaeology, what you've heard is the view of the statutory consultee um, that one expects a large number of new sites to be identified, um, some of which, and, and there's no reason to assume uh, that they won't be uh, of national importance. And so that is the view to which significant weight must be given. That then begs the question, well, where is the evidence to dispute that? So you've heard some opinion, uh, but where is the evidence uh, to show that view to be wrong? And we say it simply uh, doesn't exist. We accept that this is a plan-making process, not a planning application, and, and evidence will necessarily be at a higher level. But even taking that into account... Uh, it's very clear to us that there isn't the evidence to refute the view of Historic England and to show that the key question for this plan-making process, that the site is capable of being developed without causing unacceptable uh, heritage harm. Um, tied to that, and, and moving now into, into the other subjects, um, of course, that we rely on those three constraints, heritage, landscape and transport. Those have to, can't be looked at simply individually because, of course, what's required from a heritage perspective may have knock-on severe landscape effects, etc. So one has to take a, a, a holistic uh, approach. And um, so with that in mind, if I could just uh, hand over to Mr Noon, uh, who's our transport consultant, to deal with those matters, and then I'll hand over to Ms Marsh to deal with landscape. I just check, is everybody managing to hear, or is that... Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm Athol Noon from a firm called Marquides Associates, and we're um, acting on behalf of Great Chesterford Parish Council in relation to transport matters. Um, I'd like to make six points about um, the, the response to, to question one in relation to transport. Um, firstly, working my way out from the site itself to the external environment. And it might be helpful if you could um, look at one of the diagrams from the promoter's document. I think it's document 1902.38, which is the transport vision document. Um, just, to, just to illustrate my first just point. say that number again. 1902.38 is the transport vision document. That's the document. If you could look at uh, figure 6.8, please, that would be helpful. Thank you. 
So the point I'm trying to, to make about uh, in this race is, is, is the actual site access. Now, um, for the local plan, and I think for the very long term, the site access is onto the B148 um, Walden Road um, at Stumps Cross. There are actually two access points shown on the plan. Um, those access points are 500 metres apart. So they're not very different. They're both on the same road, and they both either um, send traffic in the direction of Stumps Cross or to Saffron Walden. Um, and, and use of the second access, the Park Road access, is limited by policy SP7. And the promoter acknowledges that they wouldn't be able to send very much traffic down this access. So essentially what, what you end up with is a, is a development of 5,000 houses and 3,150-odd jobs, all access from one point onto a B road in this location. Um, and, and putting that into context, the development at full build-out would probably be reasonably close to the size of Saffron Walden. And, and Saffron Walden has seven links to the surrounding road network. And in this particular case, there, there is one. Now, in, in figure 6.8, it does show an indicative line to the north, um, in dashed, a dashed line, um, which is a potential link to the A1307 to the north. However, um, it's quite clear that this land, for certainly for vehicle access, is outside of the, the control of the developer. And in all the documentation, including the latest statement of common ground, uh, which is ED, um, ED40, it, it's, it, it, actually, it actually specifies that they will investigate an additional access rather than actually require one. So I think, I think the conclusion you can take from all this is that the entire full build-out development will access onto essentially one location on one road in, in this location. And I think our, our view on that is that that is um, not appropriate um, and, and will place significant pressure on the B184 to Saffron Walden, the village of Great Chesterford, and further afield the A1301 to the A505. Um, so that, that, um, that's, that's the first point I'd like to make about the restrained access. Um, the second point is the actual Stumps Cross Junction itself. Now, you heard some evidence about this yesterday, um, and evidence has been produced that uh, the junction should be able to accommodate 2,700 dwellings. I, I note that the, um, the, the calculations I've seen don't really say how many jobs, but they just talk about the dwellings. Um, but these, this, is, this is still subject to more detailed design and modelling as per paragraph um, 3.16 of the Statement of Common Ground, which was um, issued very recently, which I think is ED40. So, so even at the 2,700 level, the junction is not com completely proven, but, but requires um, f further work. So that, that, uh, the reference I gave was to ED40 and to paragraph um, 3.16. Um. Okay. Um, 
so the further point we would like to make is that while the while the promoters um, consultants have suggested that a further improvement, which they call the widening improvement to Stumps Cross, could accommodate up to 5,000 dwellings, that has not been accepted by Highways England, and due to the, the, the constraints, uh, I believe, under the A11 um, junction, it's very narrow, there are bridge abutments, and um, it's quite an, uh, a constrained area in which to put a, a major road improvement. It's also worth noting that that, that same link is where you would probably put pedestrian and cycle links to uh, the, the genome campus, which is only a very short distance away, but there's no mention of that in the, the current strategy, probably because they wish to use that road for widening um, for, for, for traffic. So, so, so essentially the, 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 the point again is this testing of the 5,000 dwellings by the promoter's consultants once again reinforces our view that the whole access strategy is based on one access to that one road and that one junction, which is, which is going to be a, a critical aspect in the future, and the evidence has not been produced that that can accommodate that level of, 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 of growth in traffic. The, th the third point um, is about another junction slightly further afield we talked about yesterday, which is the A505 A1301 junction. I think it's referred to as the McDonald's junction. And there was some evidence, again, produced by White Young Green. And I think the reference we discussed yesterday is reference 1500.4, which is the assessment of the uh, South Cambridge junctions, where, where White Young Green um, emphasise uh, or, or state that they, they think they, they accommodate up to 2,800 dwellings at NUGC. Um, again, it's not clear how many jobs they've modelled. And, and it looks under, underestimated. But, but once again, no solution has been identified and costed and programmed beyond this. So, so, so all the evidence before us is that that junction can only accommodate up to 2,800 um, units, much the same way as the Stumps Cross Junction can potentially only accommodate that, that many units. And as, as I pointed out, there, there are no, the, the likelihood of another access to the north is, it, it seems very unlikely. Um, it's on third-party land. It's been looked at for a number of years, and there's no solution uh, forthcoming. The, the fourth point um, is the issues of the link capacity and major upgrades required to the A505, um, as, as set out in the Council's own evidence. And that, that's um, referenced in uh, document 1500.14, um, where, where basically they describe the severe pressure that road will be placed under. I think the link stresses um, in the vicinity of the McDonald's roundabout range between 175% and 192% from, from memory. Um, and the uncertainty of delivery of those schemes is recognised by the local planning authority themselves. Um, and in the local plan, paragraph 3.1, 101, it states that the entirety of the new settlement cannot be built out without strategic highway improvements such as the duelling of the A505 between the M11 and the A11, and it suggests a cap of 3,300 dwelling units. Um, we, we note that this requirement is, not, is, is in the supporting text, but not actually in the policy text, 
and we believe it should be in the, the, the policy text of the, of, of the local plan. So there's, there's a, it, although there's a lot of discussion about studies and about um, future possibilities, the evidence has not been provided that that junction and that road can accommodate more than the number I mentioned, which is 2,800. Um, you'd be glad to know it's my fifth point, second to last. Um, the, 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 once again, evidence has not been produced, we believe, that Great Chesterford Station, Audley End Station, Whittle Station can cope with the proposed jobs and houses proposed. There's much discussion of the master plan for Whittlesford, but we have seen no evidence of how the people from NUGC and how the employees of NUGC would travel to and from these various stations, um, what mode of travel, if they go by car or bicycle, where would, they, where would they park? And the capacity of these stations to cope with that travel and the passengers themselves. And anybody who's been to, um, to Great Chesterford Station understands that the capacity for uh, significant, there's, there's no car parking. Um, the car parking at Audley End and at, Great, um, at Whittlesford is, is very constrained with very few spaces and, and those issues. So once again, we... we, we, we um, we, we would like to suggest that, that no evidence has been provided that, that can, can cope. The final point is about the sustainable transport infrastructure, which is, which is quite critical to the whole garden community principles and also the, developer, the, the promoter and the council's claims that um, there will be significant mode shift and that the consequent traffic would be, would be low. And, and although there's, there's a lot of discussion in various documents about mass rapid transit systems, um, there's no evidence that we've seen that actually shows that that is likely to be a realistic proposition in the case of NEGC. Um, there's nothing in the IDP about that. Um, there's nothing in terms of payments by the promoter uh, for such a system. And, and the, re the real reality of the public transport provision is, is in coming out of the documents, is it, is it really what's being proposed is a standard bus service, not high quality bus rapid transit, of, a, of an approximate 20 minute frequency or three an hour in the peak hours, which goes a distance of about six miles around a few key employment locations, um, and, a, and some sort of hopper service outside those hours. Um, we also noted yesterday in discussion about the RDP that this is obviously subject to a viability assessment, so it may not actually be delivered in that form either. And in our view, this is, this is totally unsuitable for development of this scale, the size of Saffron Walden, in a rural area with very poor public transport and, and fall short of the SP, um, SP7 and garden communities um, objectives. So in conclusion, with those six points, we believe that um, the, fa the fact there's all points are finding that the evidence has not been produced. In fact, there's evidence probably to the contrary that the site is capable of living those 5,000 houses and those 3,150 jobs, um, and there's significant uncertainty that it actually can, can deliver that. Thank you. Thank you. Do the council want to come back on any of those? Some of them I think were probably covered yesterday. Yeah, they were, I think it would probably be helpful to bring in um, yes, please. Um, some of the council's um, transport advisors. I'll bring in Mr. Sprunt from the county council uh, and also um, 
bring in Mr. Gregory from White Young Green. Um, so perhaps while I'm... I, can, can I just, in terms of a... There's a general point uh, which we did look at uh, yesterday. Um, but in uh, the statement of common ground uh, that has been agreed between uh, Grosvenor, the District Council, Highways England, and Essex County Council. I'll just make the point, paragraph 4.1, we looked at some of the paragraphs of that um, yesterday. I think it's ED40. Um, paragraph 4.1, which is the summary, and so this is the view of the two relevant highway authorities, um, including, uh, I say, Highways England in relation to the strategic road network, which will include uh, the M11 and its accesses. There is sufficient certainty around transport and access solutions for the period covered by the local plan and beyond, and sufficient commitment from the authorities to address in transport and access solutions for the longer term for all parties to agree that North Uttlesford Garden Community is a deliverable and sound allocation in transport terms. Now, obviously, other people have different views, and you will <laughs> consider those, but uh, in terms of attaching weight to the views of uh, relevant parties, uh, we would suggest that uh, if Highways England and Essex County Council's Highway Authority have expressed those views, you can attach significant weight uh, to that uh, position. So then perhaps if I can bring in um, Mr. Uh, Sprunt uh, to deal uh, with um, any issues in terms of any concerns expressed about the access being uh, effectively uh, to the B158 uh, for most of uh, the development. Um, and um, then I'll bring in, I think, Mr. Gregory to deal with some of those points on modelling uh, and uh, the uh, issues in relation to, uh, to that. Okay. Uh, in, in terms of the accesses, there, there are proposed two, two accesses onto the road. One would clearly be the major access, the other one would be a secondary access. So there would be two points at which people could access and egress from the development. Uh, in terms of it accessing onto the M11 Junction 9A, discussions have been had with um, Highways England and whilst the solution of widening under the uh, structure was, was not considered um, desirable, they have come up with an alternative solution to improve the, the roundabouts on, on both sides of, of, of the junction instead. So in terms of access from the site and onto um, the, the motorway network, both our, ourselves and um, Highways England are satisfied that there is a, a solution that's, that's available. Um, I'm just trying to think which other bits I would probably pick up on. Oh, the, um, there's a mention of the, the, whether the jobs have been considered as well as the houses. I think that, that's oh, is that that's right? That's okay. Gregory point, I think. Uh, I think we mentioned yesterday about the A505 study quite extensively in terms of um, the work that's being done on that and the, the fact that Cambridgeshire uh, Joint Authorities are putting in 100 million into that 
that piece of work. Um, obviously, there's the rail stations, which we spoke about as well yesterday in terms of uh, the development work that's going on at Whittlesford and how that would be linked to the site in terms of, uh, of a bus service so there would be a, an alternative for people to using the car um, to link into that station. That would be part of the link into the, to the wider um, development. I think that probably covers the bits that I need to cover. Yeah. The BRT issues and the, um, the uh, sustainable transport issues more widely yesterday. So perhaps we can bring in WYG and Mr. Gregory, uh, particularly on the, the modelling. And but before we deal with the specific point, which was uh, the treatment of um, jobs and what was modelled or not modelled. Could I perhaps just ask Mr Gregory to just make some introductory comments, because I know that the um, uh, various uh, representatives had made some criticism of the approach that was taken in the white, young, green transport modelling as a matter of principle as to uh, whether it was an appropriate model that was fit for purpose. So if Mr Gregory could just briefly comment on that as an introductory point before dealing with that uh, specific matter in relation to the... Um, uh, issue about the employment. Hi, um, I'm Alistair Gregory from WYG Consultants, <clears throat> acting on behalf of Uttlesford District Council. Um, if, I, if we could start then with the, the approach to the modelling or the transport study assessment that's been undertaken in support of the local plan, I think it's important to realise um, that there is no one set out, one set approach for transport assessments for local plans that must be adopted. Um, there's guidance provided in the MPPF on transport assessments that requires studies to be, uh, the scope and methodology of the studies to be agreed with the highway authorities at the outset, um, that the studies should consider existing con conditions, um, that the effects of committed development is identified and taken into account, the effects of the proposed development is identified and taken into account, and that the studies consider all modes of transport and promote sustainable travel. Um, so because there is no one set approach that has to be adopted for all local plans, um, each is treated on its own merits and the methodology is adapted to the prevailing circumstances. Um, we've produced a response to the transport modelling objections that have been raised by various parties so I think it's perhaps useful if I read through this now just to outline to begin with the purpose of the transport study. Um, the purpose of the transport study is to demonstrate in broad terms the suitability of sites for promotion in the local plan in transport terms. As such the, the technical supporting work is less detailed than for a transport assessment that would accompany a planning application for the development of a specific site. The transport study that's been produced for the local plan has assessed the transport implications of different spatial distribution options for future local plan development within the district. It's examined potential development locations and presented a high-level comparative appraisal of 33 possible development scenarios, each with more than 30 separate development locations, together with numerous additional sensitivity tests. The choice of the modelling methodology... At the start of the project, a review was undertaken in consultation with Essex County Council and Highways England of all existing available transport models within the study area. 
this review concluded that there were no strategic, no existing strategic transport models available that were suitable for use or that could be economically extended or enhanced to make them suitable for use for the local plan. An assessment methodology was therefore required that was proportional and robust and capable of assessing a high number of scenarios within a reasonable timescale and budget. Paragraph 158 of the 2012 MPF, PPF states, using a proportionate evidence base, each local planning authority should ensure that the local plan is based on adequate, up-to-date and relevant evidence about the economic, social and environmental characteristics of proposals of the area. And this theme has continued in the 2019 MPPF, where paragraph 31 states that the preparation and review of all policies should be underpinned by relevant and up-to-date evidence. This should be adequate and proportionate, focused tightly on supporting and justifying the policies concerned. So there's a keen emphasis on proportionate evidence through the MPPF. The scope and methodology for the transport assessment was discussed and agreed with Essex County Council, Highways England and all neighbouring authorities to Uttlesford at the outset of the study. The time and cost implications of building, calibrating and validating a new district-wide full dynamic trip resignment model, for example, a Saturn, Visum, Visim or Paramix model as suggested by some objectors, was considered and with the agreement of Essex County Council and Highways England rejected at the outset of the study as being disproportionate for the purposes of the local plan. The agreed methodology was to use a hybrid approach, which uses a VISM-assisted spreadsheet model of the highway network within the district and surrounding areas. The methodology assigns development traffic flows onto the network using a detailed VISM model. These flows are then added to base traffic flows and compared against congestion reference flows, or CRF, values in a spreadsheet. CRF is an industry standard performance measure for assessing the capacity of rural road links. And the benefits of using the CRF methodology are that the network, or that network link capacity can be assessed relatively easily as the data required for the calculation is either readily available or can be obtained relatively inexpensively. Alternative methodologies such as using dynamic trip reassignment models require much more extensive input data, including origin destination surveys, which at the district level would be extremely complex, time-consuming and expensive to undertake. The modelling process itself is also significantly more complex and time-consuming, and it was agreed with the highway authorities to be disproportionate for the purposes of the local plan, particularly given the large number of development scenarios requiring assessment. So in the agreed methodology, the VISM model includes committed development sites as well as proposed local plan allocation sites. Committed developments were identified through the preparation of an uncertainty log covering the district and all adjacent districts to Uttlesford. Committed development was compared against TEMPRO forecasts and uplifted to match TEMPRO where any shortfalls were identified in accordance with WebTAG guidance. Development trip generation was estimated using person trips obtained from the industry standard TRICS database. Modal splits were taken from the 2011 census data and applied to person trip generation to derive trips by each mode of travel. Using census modal splits ensured that the resultant trip generation reflected local mode share characteristics. Separate modal splits were used for rural and urban areas of the district. Trips were then distributed according to 2011 census journey to work data. 
The main difference between the methodology used in the study and a full reassignment model is the TRIP assignment method itself. The VISM model used in the study applied an all-or-nothing assignment which assumed no congestion effects and TRIPs were assigned to the most economical routes available between TRIP origin and destination, with speed and time being the deciding factors. In this instance, the route choice is therefore biased towards higher category roads where vehicle speeds are generally higher and journey times are lower. Although this method cannot reassign trips to reflect network congestion, in the context of assessing local plan site allocations and identifying the need for strategic highway improvements, this is a major advantage because the traffic assignments from the VISM model show where development traffic wants to route. Instead of traffic being reassigned to the wider network, with trips being diverted away from congested junctions onto less appropriate lower category roads, the all-or-nothing assignment shows clearly where the traffic wants to go and the level of traffic wanting to route that way. So strategic, so strategic interventions can be targeted to keep traffic on the most appropriate routes and away from sensitive areas. The stress plans produced by comparing forecast traffic demands against linked CRF values clearly show which parts of the highway network... Can I just inter interject? Is, is it going to be... I mean, obviously reading from a document, is it going to be it's, a lot? It's, there's not much more. Right, OK. Um, clearly show which parts of the highway network would be likely to put under pressure by the different local plan scenarios assessed. The information combined with a review of the performance of key junctions enables a strategic level view to be taken as to where infrastructure improvements will be required if all the assessed development is delivered. Further assessment can then be undertaken to examine the preliminary nature, cost and feasibility of delivering improvements at those junctions. It's important to note that the local plan is not the final stage in the transport assessment process and more detailed work will continue to be undertaken in discussion with the higher authorities to further develop mitigation measures. Just a few final points. Um, I think it's important to note that there are other examples where this same methodology has been used in support of local plans. Um, a couple of examples are the Newark and Sherwood District Council local plan, which used the, an identical VISM-assisted spreadsheet model. Um, and again, that was for a predominantly rural district with a very similar network to Uthlesford with a, a couple of strategic road network routes through the district. Um, it was also used for the Bassett Law District Council local plan, again a VISM assisted spreadsheet model for a very similar uh, district, rural characteristics, very similar to Uthelsford. Um In both of those examples, the assessment methodology was agreed with the highway authorities and the inspector accepted the transport study findings uh, and ruled the plans to be sound at examination. Um, Objectors have drawn comparison with the use of reassignment models, um, for example, Saturn, Visim, Visim or Pramix that have been used by some other districts for their local plans. Uh, and they've suggested that this is evidence of the approach that has been used in Uttlesford as being unsound. Um, the two examples that have been quoted are the City of York Council and Rugby Borough Council. Um, and in both cases, the key difference to Uttlesford is it is that reassignment models already existed and were available for use for testing um, the implications of those particular local plans. Now, obviously, if this had been the case in Uttlesford, then the modelling would, would have used an available model, but there was no available model to, for that to be used. Um, so an alternative methodology was therefore required that was proportional and robust and capable of assessing the high number of scenarios, as I've already mentioned. 
Um, the other important point to also note is that York and Rugby both differ in characteristics to Uttlesford as both comprise significant urban areas with complex highway networks that dominate the local authority areas. So in those locations, it may well have been appropriate for those authorities to use a model capable of trip reassignment, whereas that's not the case in Uttlesford, which is predominantly rural with a relatively simple network with very limited route choice. And now can you come on to deal with in terms of the specifics about the, uh, the way that the model dealt with uh, the uh, development at North Uttlesford? Uh, and I think Mr Noon had raised issues about to what extent uh, employment as opposed to housing growth had been factored into the uh, uh, assessment. Yeah, um, the employment assumptions were the same assumptions that are listed under scenario 33 from the, the model testing that's been undertaken. Um, I don't have the figures available to hand, but I can confirm that shortly. It will just require a bit of quick research through the documents. Um, but... Needless to say, employment was taken into account um, at North Uthusford when the modelling testing was done. Um, with, with regards to the examination of the off-site highway impacts at North Uthusford, um, again, it was using the methodology and the model process that I've just described. Um, and as part of that, M11, Junction 10, and the A505-1301, which is the McDonald's roundabouts, were both assessed. And both of those junctions are on the A505 corridor within South Cambridgeshire. Um, again, I think it's important to note that the scope and methodology for that, for that particular assessment was agreed with South Cambridgeshire District Council, Cambridgeshire County Council, um, as well as obviously Essex County Council and Highways England. Um, the work demonstrated that the, a, the A505 corridor is already operating close to capacity um, and the McDonald's roundabout already experiences delays and congestion in the peak periods. Um, the addition of committed development traffic will make that situation worse. So, again, it's a, I think it's a really important point to note that improvements are going to be required to the A505 corridor whether any local plan development occurs in Uttlesford or not. Um, so those, the requirement for those improvements isn't being driven by the local plan. It's being driven by um, its existing performance and the additional pressure that will be placed upon it by committed development. Um, those improvements will be required, otherwise they will just simply act as a constraint to future growth within South Cambridgeshire. Um, we mentioned yesterday that preliminary improvement schemes have been identified for both M11 Junction 10 and the McDonald's roundabouts. Um, the improvements that have been identified will deliver better than nil detriment. Um, and I think the point was again raised this morning that was raised yesterday that the assessment didn't test the full um, quantity of development at North Uttlesford because the testing was essentially for a slightly lower quantity of uh, development, which I believe was 2,800 dwellings with employment. Um, and the method to, 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 to get to the um, assumption that 3,300 dwellings could be accommodated was basically through extrapolation from the results. So the, the improvements that were identified at those two junctions were identified to deliver better than no detriment. So essentially we looked at the spare capacity that, was, that the improvements would deliver and equated that backwards to... Uh, calculate what additional development that would relate to at North Uttlesford Garden Village. And that's how the 3,300 dwelling 
um, threshold was derived. Um, beyond 3,300 dwellings, more comprehensive improvements will be required to the, to the McDonald's roundabout. Um, and this is where any improvements beyond that, essentially it's going to be for the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Combined Authority Study, which is uh, just being tendered at the moment. Um, so the Combined Authority and its partners are currently tendering a study to understand the options to address the current problems and future transport demand on the A505 between Royston and the A11, um, and also considering the areas that feed into that corridor. Um, this study is due to be awarded in November 2019 and is expected to take circa 12 to 18 months to complete. Um, the outputs from the study are expected to be transport improvements and policy interventions uh, that are required to support and enable development planned to the southeast of Cambridge and housing in the wider area. Um, so we are in the position where until this study is complete, the package of final mitigation for the A505 is unconfirmed. Um, but we have demonstrated that the planned allocations for the local plan period can be delivered and beyond. Um, I think it's also important to note because of the status of the study for the A505, it wouldn't be appropriate to work up more detailed mitigation schemes for the junctions mentioned earlier because they could potentially be abortive in the long term because until we know what the study is going to suggest um, it just wouldn't make sense to be designing up more comprehensive improvements that then may not fit in with what would come out of the study um, so yeah I think just to summarise again not standing what the findings of the study will be the primary capacity assessments that we've already undertaken demonstrate um, that local highway improvements are feasible and deliverable at those locations and they will be sufficient to facil facilitate delivery of the local plan. Do you want to come back on those points or something different? Because I'll, I'll give everybody else a chance to... Yeah, OK. Very briefly on those points, one. Um, first point is, is... Well, that's exactly the point, really, is that there is just this uncertainty beyond a certain point uh, in the development. And it was said, well, the... The 505, um, essentially it's so bad, something will have to be done about it, otherwise it will be a constraint to development. Well, it's exactly what it is. It's a constraint to development now, and unless there's a solution now, there can be no uh, certainty uh, or, or no, um, not sufficient, um, sufficient certainty that the entirety of the allocation will come forward. Um, the second point is with regards to the bus rapid... Uh, the BRT, I hope I've got the right acronym, it was said that was discussed yesterday, it wasn't discussed in relation to North Uttlesford, and it's simply seeking confirmation that that is not proposed for North Uttlesford, and all that is apparently proposed is this 20-minute uh, peak period service, which will do about a, a, a six-mile uh, round trip, as Mr Noon said, because if that is the case, that has, we would say, significant implications for the sustainability of this site. And we remember one of the reasons why garden communities have been allocated is because they have the potential uh, to deliver uh, infrastructure, in particular sustainable transport infrastructure. And so there are very serious concerns uh, if, if such a limited 
service has been factored into the IDP, into the viability assessment and, and will ultimately be required. And of course, we note that even that bus service is said on the face of the IDP to be subject to viability. So if the council could just simply confirm that position, that would be helpful. Thank you. I don't know which me, Mr. Sprunt, is it? Like musical chairs, isn't it? Yes, just on, on the, the bus element of, uh, of this and what's been, been called the BRT, this, this is not a BRT in, in, in the same way as, as that that's being proposed in the south of, of Uttlesford, which obviously is linking together a number of, of major developments. So it's, it's a very different uh, approach here. This, this, is, this is very much looking at the site as, a, as an individual site, looking at a, a, a good starting point of, of a 20-minute bus service to, to start off with and then monitoring and managing that um, and seeing what, what's necessary as you move forwards throughout the development. And that obviously could go up in numbers. And as we did mention uh, previously, there is work going on in Cambridgeshire also looking at uh, a, a service to... Um, deal with the issues they've got with the various science parks uh, in terms of people getting there sustainably which this service could tie into and, and would inevitably tie into because of the links to Great Chesterford Research Park as well so there's opportunities for this service to expand with the wider uh, in, uh, proposals which are being investigated in Cambridgeshire as well. It's answered the question and it's confirmed the fears in terms of the sustainable transport provision, particularly recognising that there is no capacity at the three railway stations, uh, no real capacity. Um, and, and so we would say that this is inconsistent with national policy with regards to locating uh, development where opportunities for sustainable development can be uh, maximised. Mr Katkowski. Well, I'd like to say this is out of chivalry, but it's, it's, it's actually a more, um, it's not quite that, but wasn't Miss Hutton going to say something about, or her colleague going to say something about landscape, because I'd rather sort of we swept up all these points in one go rather than asking for a second go, so perhaps we're, should I'm we do that now, if you that don't mind? Yep. Okay. Well, that's, thank you for remembering me. <laughs> Well, then if I could introduce um, Ms. Christine Marsh of Hankinson Duckett, um, who's going to uh, deliver our bit on landscape. I've been working with uh, Great Chesterford and Little Chesterford Parish Council since uh, May 2015, when we were working on their uh, neighbourhood plan. Um, we were asked to undertake a landscape capacity uh, study for the two parishes. Um, and this is actually re has been referred to in some of the council's uh, documentation. I'll just draw your attention to the uh, paragraph 2.5 of the uh, council's hearing statement, where they said, following a report prepared by Ben Smeden, who was their landscape officer, uh, the council found now overriding impediment to development. I'd just like to quote from Mr. Speeden's report. Overall, the character of the site is considered to have a high sensitivity to change. The nature and scale of the proposed development would have a significant impact on the character of the site and the surrounding landscape. 
This predominantly rolling landscape with its historic field pattern is considered to be of significant visual quality. The open skyline and the views across the Chelmer, now we all know it's actually the Cam Valley, are particularly sensitive to change. And yet the council considered this not to be an impediment to development. The site is so at odds with the accepted settlement pattern of the area. And that's historically been uh, along the valleys where the availability of water. Here we're on a chalk upland where water has always been an issue. I'd just also like to draw your attention to paragraph 2.6 of the council's hearing statement, where they refer to the uh, LVA that was produced by uh, Chris Blandford Associates. So this is back in June 2017. Uh, They summarise in their hearing statement four points which I will take individually. Their first point was, the area is not subject to any designations on scenic quality and is relatively unconstrained with regard to landscape features. The lack of a designation does not mean that ordinary landscape should not be protected from inappropriate development, and that's what this is. It states it's relatively unconstrained with regard to landscape features. That's perhaps the key characteristic of this site, is its openness. You can see all across it. I hope on your site visit that you drove up Park Road all the way up to Park Farm, because The landscape speaks for itself. You can see all across the Cam Valley from the top of those ridges. The second point they they, uh, refer to uh, on the CBA uh, LVA was that landscape sensitivity to a new settlement is high. This is their own consultant saying this, and they've said that the problem here is the open rolling hillside and the topography of the site. Back to my uh, previous point. Their third bullet is, it is desirable to limit development on the upper valley sides and the ridges. Now at this point I'll draw your attention to our plan that we produced. If the desire is to limit development on the upper valley sides and ridges, I don't understand how that has been uh, demonstrated. When you overlay the illustrative master plan with a topography map, it's evident that most of the development actually happens on the upper valley sides and on the ridges. I don't think this site could be delivered without some development up on the ridges, um, and that is totally contrary to uh, the whole landscape character, the settlement pattern, and just the visual intrusion of a settlement up on the top of a hill. Their fourth point is the need for a strong commitment to good design and to ensure mitigation takes account of opportunities and constraints identified. I think the topography is the biggest constraint on this, and I don't think any level of mitigation can overcome the fundamental problem of the site choice. Uh, Any mitigation on this site, i.e. covering the place in in, uh, trees, Uh, would be totally contrary to the existing uh, landscape character, its openness. And, um, okay, we may say we can completely shroud it in trees, but how long is that going to take to take effect? Um, You could say down at the uh, Great Chesterford Research Park that that is a development that is surrounded by trees, but they're very extensive 
and you can still see the development on the hill, even from the M11. So it's a similar situation as what we've got at the research park. You certainly see it right away across the valley. So uh, I'd just like to uh, refer back to the uh, CBA um, report, and they, they quite succinctly for me uh, set out the key constraints of the site, and I think I'll just quote them straight. The land at Great Chesterford is a high landscape and visual sensitivity. Given its steeply sloping landform and elevated position, its open fields and its limited vegetation structure and the potential for long-distance cross-valley views into the site. Furthermore, given the settlement pattern with the area of Great, within the area of Great Chesterford, where all the settlements and the road and the rail infrastructure largely follow the valley floor, development that would cut across the upper valley sides and the ridgeline of the site would be uncharacteristic of the local settlement pattern. As such, it is desirable to limit development on the upper valley sides and the, and the ridgeline. So this is their own consultants, and yet uh, this was chosen to be ignored. I think in 2017, when this report was produced, maybe things had just gone too far down the line. Um, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, more reference wasn't made to our landscape capacity study, which uh, set out where the chalk ridges and uh, valley slopes where we divided up the whole of the parishes. Uh, we said the capacity for development in those areas was exceptionally low. Um, and that seems to be ignored, particularly in the CBA. Reference was made to it in the landscape officer's report, but not in other um, documents that the council were relying on as their evidence base. Uh, so I just think wrong site uh, for such a large development. That's it, thank you. Thank you. Just coming up to 20 to 12 with nearly our allocated um, time for a break. Did you want to bring Ms Gay in at all? Well, it would probably be helpful just to have a brief uh, response. I know you've got the, the written material Yes. Uh, that uh, we have provided. Oh, right. Okay, so, sorry, I, th I think probably it's being suggested it may be better to have a break, have a break and deal with that in a moment. Or we can take some more comments and then yeah. come back if there's um, um, there may be other comments that, that might be, sort of be able to be wrapped up all at once if we see... Uh, how long we've got sort of five minutes do you think you're going to be more than five minutes right. it's quite a lot to respond to so I think it's going to be, have to be after the next wedding ma'am so. <laughs> that's fine has <laughs> there anybody got a sort of quick point that we can just deal with in five minutes to make good use of time no Mr Sadler uh, thank you ma'am um, Terry Sadler uh, representing Nicholson Parish Council and uh, also Hingston Parish Council. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd just like to um, say how, how much the Parish Councils immediately over the border in South Cams would support the comments uh, made just now about landscape quality and character. And um, we think that this is... And it's acknowledged that as the most sensitive landscape area of the three sites chosen by Uttlesford for new settlements. Uh, 
you've been, uh, it's been suggested that you drive up Park Road and have a look across. Have and on Monday you, evening. Have you driven up the other side of the valley to the two locations identified in Ickleton Parish Council submission from which you can see the other side of the Cam Valley, from which you can see the, the whole site virtually? I do, I do urge you to do so, because you can see, you will see if you do that, just how visible the proposed development, as shown in this master plan, would be. And they're proposing to build on the most visible and prominent parts of the site. Um, and these, I, I submit that the views from Nicholson Parish Council, from the Strettle Road and... Elden Road, these views alone establish that significant and adverse landscape and visual impacts cannot be avoided if North Huttleswood goes ahead. I'll just point out that UDC Local Plan Policy C1, protection of landscape character, is clearly breached by the NUGC proposal. I think it says cross-valley views in the river valleys should be maintained with developments on valley sides respecting the historic settlement pattern. And I think NUGC does none of this. Um, and I'll also comment on uh, transport and the improvements to the A505. Um, the reference to 100 million being set aside by the combined authority really has to be taken with a pinch of salt. And I'm not making any political points, but there are plenty of people in Cambridgeshire who are, regard the, the, the mayor's budget as very opaque, and he doesn't seem to know the difference between revenue and capital expenditure. And uh, you know, 100 million committed is... I think that any improvements are a very, very long way off. And to have a local plan that depends on something turning up at some uncertain future date, paid for by other people, is not sound. Uh, and I, another comment on traffic. Um, that in Ickleton and Hinkston parishes, that suffer from rat running from the A roads because the A roads are congested and slow, uh, that the studies are carried out at such a high level, we're told that's uh, appropriate for, for uh, local plan development, you know, uh, considering sites, but nobody looked at rat running through my village, which uh, a village of fewer than 300 houses Past my window every working day, we have 4,000 vehicle movements um, because people from Uttlesford are taking to unclassified rural roads to get to Junction 10 of the M11. Then the same thing happens in the evening because the, they can't get along the A505. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, you know, I just find the traffic study flawed. Uh, in that they haven't identified thousands 
of vehicle movements uh, that are displaced uh, from the, the A roads by their inadequacy. I think that's it for now. Just at a quarter to, uh, to 12. So we'll take our break now, and I think we need to be back at 12 o'clock. Um, and then we'll sit for another hour, and then we'll have lunch. And, um, yeah, we don't think there's any weddings this afternoon, so it'll be slightly easier. And we've got a shorter block this afternoon. It is useful because we've had a long block this morning to break it up with two small breaks, I think. So, so 12 o'clock, there's tea and coffee on the landing and things.
to mention it now. Okay, welcome back. I think Louise is just checking who we've got in the room at the moment. Um, we're conscious of the time. It's 12 o'clock. We've got another hour till lunchtime. And then this afternoon, we've still got, obviously, the rest of this session to deal with. We've got West of Braintree and we've got the Eastern Park. And we're starting to wonder realistically whether we'll get all three done today. Um, and so we need to probably better sooner rather than later to think about when... For example, Eastern Park, we could sort of roll that on um, either to tomorrow afternoon. We've got a reserve day Friday. Um, for us, it would probably be better tomorrow afternoon. Um, we think probably tomorrow morning could be dealt with in the morning. I don't know whether the council have got any particular views on... Sorry, I've sprung it on you a little bit. But... Well, you have, and also slightly in terms of that, because uh, as you appreciate, there is, uh, I think I mentioned um, the week before last, uh, I'm not here tomorrow, uh, but uh, Assata Ranatunga will be providing the legal support. Um, I, have to say, I haven't actually discussed directly with him the timing as to whether he got a feeling on uh, how long matters might take tomorrow as to whether there is some spare time uh, available. Um, Perhaps you just give me a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think our provisional view is that, uh, uh, and obviously subject to contributions from others in the room, we think that it should be achievable to deal with tomorrow's agenda business during tomorrow morning. So that would leave some time available for uh, uh, overspill from today if that's what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, that was our thought. Miss Worthington's dealing with tomorrow's session. She's prepared for that. Obviously, it's always difficult to tell from what people are going to bring to the room and how long it's going to take. Um, does anybody want to make any comments on Mr. Warren? Warren sorry, I'll just come to a mic. I'm just, it's just Bennett useful now for us all to just have a little think about it. Yeah, I mean, um, we, um, we'd obviously appreciate the um, opportunity to have a, you know, the right scale of session for our for our site, um, and we were due to be on first, of course, today. Um, we we have practical issues with um, our team, obviously assembled on the basis of today's session, late um, t tomorrow and Friday. So, in particular, Mr. Bird um, becomes unavailable halfway through tomorrow afternoon. Um, and there are other team members who aren't scheduled to, to be here, um, obviously booked on the basis that it was going to be today. So um, may we have a think, that that's our kind of immediate reaction, may we have a think about a day with the lunch adjournment and come back to you. In the interim, might, might it be possible just to explore, because there may be other benefits to this in terms of your consideration of the garden community's issues in general, in, I don't want to suggest this, um, <clears throat> without um, thinking through all of the consequences, but um, uh, pushing tomorrow morning session to the afternoon and doing Eastern Park, as it were, in sequence after the other two garden communities, because that would certainly enable um, all of our relevant people to be here and may, may help others. I don't know who expected them to be dealt with one after the other. Yeah, and the other, or the other option is to swap this afternoon round and do, if that gives you problems, do West of Braintree 
if, if that Thursday was acceptable to Western, the Western Braintree team and Friday the council morning. and others, then we'd obviously be happy. It's like a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? You move one piece and something else, um, uh, something else falls. Has anybody got any comments on that? The uh, I, th I, th I think uh, yes we, we would need to just check in terms of our consultants team availability for changing things around and, and at the moment obviously we don't quite know that uh, so uh, perhaps we can revisit this after the lunch after adjournment. lunch yeah I think that's probably wise and hence why we wanted to raise it now so gentlemen right so you need to be done <laughs> Yeah, we'll revisit it after lunch and if people want to contribute then to that discussion. We realise that there's some people not here yet. I'm just sort of flagging it up now so that the earlier I flag it up, the more people can think about it and... Um, uh, and we can deal with it because I think it is unlikely and as you say we don't want to start dealing with Eastern Park at 4.30 this afternoon or something that's not appropriate yes we'll have a think after lunch are you coming back after lunch today okay so we'll try and work out what, what the best fit is for it all then okay Mr. Katkowski. <laughs> Thank you, ma'am. Right. So these, these local plan examinations, we've been on the McDonald's roundabout looking at Roman temples. We've been looking at the trajectory. So we've just got to try and organise our responses. So, ma'am, we try and do this as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Um, we're going to start with landscape and then heritage matters, and I'll move some people out of these seats to my right and... Uh, We'll move on to highways and then finally just a couple of words about the trajectory because we mustn't forget Mr Belton's points. Um, but can I just introduce this on the, on the heritage side, just as a general scene setter. We started obviously earlier on with Historic England. Sorry, I should have said Christopher Kalkowski QC for Grosvenor for those at home. If you're still listening to any of this, <laughs> you lucky folk at home in your gardens on this lovely sunny day. Um, so in relation to heritage, I'm just rewinding to um, the opening remarks from um, Ms. Mack for um, Historic England. And it seems to me that we, should, we need to be very careful, if I might suggest, to separate out two quite distinct points. Point number one is whether the North Uttersford location is an in, is a inappropriate location in the first place, quote-unquote, um, for a garden community. And that seems to me, if I might say, to be an essay, a sustainability appraisal point, and that's been discussed well, pretty much on it. Well, most days, it's certainly been covered extensively at this examination, and there are judgment calls involved in that, and you know, we'll see where you, where you and your colleagues stand on that in due course. That needs to be separated from actually the question that you've asked for today's session, which we perhaps shouldn't lose sight of, which in relation to the tail end of question number two is a very straightforward question, which is whether the presence of heritage on the North Uttersford site, valuable heritage, has been factored into the calculation of the likely developable area of the site and the provision of infrastructure and services. It's a very separate question. And in effect, if you're asking that question, just for the sake of the analysis, one has to assume that the SA, if you like, has survived scrutiny and that we're thinking about this site as a realistic site for a garden community. 
Uh, you know, we'd never get to this question if the essay work is fatally flawed, for example. So on the assumption that this is a location that's been appropriately assessed through the, has been looked at properly through the sustainability appraisal work, uh, then your question arises. And our answer to the question, it, you can write the word answer down in one word. The answer to the question is yes, um, your, the question you've actually asked. I mean, this site is so, so, so vast that there's more than ample scope to, um, to develop it um, for the number of homes and the business floor space and so on that's envisaged and yet protect the heritage on the site. So with that distinction made between the two separate and distinct questions which arise, one of which the first one isn't really for now, whereas the second one is for now, um, I'll just bring in to my right-hand side I have um, Fiona McKenzie from EDP who's responsible for the master plan and for landscape issues and to her right Matt Morgan from EDP who's uh, responsible for um, below ground heritage. Ma'am can I just before I introduce them I know you've, you've been and had a little look at the site and so on and so forth on Monday and um, probably in looking around you, you would have you, you know one of the fields that you looked at um, is a field in which the Roman temple is um, but there's nothing above ground to see um, and I, I wondered whether, on your little tour, whether the other day, whether you paused to try to work out where the, which field is it, is, is, it, is it in which the temple is buried, basically. Which, no, we didn't. No. We, it was a sort of a drive around. Exactly. And, and I can um, imagine what you, what you went did. Past, yeah. Uh, yeah. Park, down Park Lane, up past the new cemetery. And, Indeed, um, the, the crematorium. The crematorium, yes. sorry, and yes. Um, yes. That, yes. along there. Yes. And then sort of driving, we've driven around and... Yes, um, indeed, indeed. No, that, that's so fine. So not trampled through fields and... No, no, no. <laughs> well, no, it's just there's a place you can stop and you can just look and you know, there's a very good sort of view to get, to get a, an understanding of what on earth everyone's been talking about this morning. So, ma'am, perhaps, um, perhaps either ourselves, the council, historic England, some, someone really needs to provide you with a plan showing if you stop here um, and look, you know, this way, it's that field there where the, where the Roman temple lies under the, under the crop or the crops, um, that I think would be useful, really. Because it's a little bit hard, I, I would say, if it was me, I'd say it was very hard to have this discussion without having some mental picture of what on earth we're talking about. Anyway, with that in mind, I'm going to turn to, uh, to Fiona McKenzie to my right, first of all, who I know wants to say a few words by way of introduction in relation to the landscape points which have been raised by the Parish Council. Then, next, a few words about the ability of the master plan and the site itself to accommodate heritage, heritage interests on the site. And then we're going to turn after that to um, Matt Morgan, who's going to say a few words about something which really hasn't been paid any attention to so far, which is the ability, actually, of the, of the garden community to enhance valuable heritage on the site, and in particular the Roman temple and its setting. Can so I, I just remind you, though, that with the discussion we had yesterday is that it's for the council to defend absolutely, the plan. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and but bear in mind that much of the criticism and commentary that's been made has been about our master plan. Yes, so yeah. if we can keep comments to things, absolutely. Uh, what the council hasn't been able fully to address. Aware, fully aware, ma'am. Having waited for you know, several hours for my chance to speak, so we're, we're now, with that in mind, speak. Thank you very much, uh, ma'am. Um, my name, as Christopher has pointed out, is Fiona McKenzie, EDP. I'm a landscape architect and have been advising um, Grosvenor on the North Ossesford um, Garden Community site. And have been 
very much involved in the development of the illustrative master plan, which you will have seen um, as part um, of our um, Regulation 19 um, submissions. Now, a number of points have been made um, over the course of today um, relating to landscape and various different assessments that um, have been carried out, both the um, HIA and um, landscape assessments that you've heard. The one or two key points I'd just like to put across at, at, this, at this time, and um, I'm conscious that landscape can be quite an emotive subject, and um, we've heard from Historic England um, about the, the various different um, rolling chalkland landscapes um, that, we, um, that we have in this area, um, and the, um, the, the, the plethora of features, historic features within, within the landscape. Uh, we need to remember that... Um, at the end of the day, this is an undesignated landscape. Um, there are no rare features on it. And um, you know, we have, um, in actual fact, a, um, a site which, um, for, for the district as a whole, is in a very unconstrained um, location. Um, if you look at our um, landscape and visual appraisal that we did submit with the Regulation 19 um, representation, uh, the, um, the figure 2.1 there shows that there are designations, not just heritage, but um, landscape, woodland, ecological designations across the whole district that would constrain you know, all manner of um, uh, locations. And importantly here, we, um, we do have a, um, a white canvas in actual fact. Um, and that is something that um, is important to, to remember. The features that we do have on the site, and they've been mentioned um, already, the, um, the Deer Park Pale, for example, um, they, they are features that um, can be celebrated as part of a, um, a master plan, as part of a development. Um, we can gain additional public access to them, and our um, Master plan has shown that um, by a, you know, a well thought through green infrastructure strategy, um, th th those features can be incorporated into um, a, a master plan in, in, in a way that um, they give a sense of place to the development and, um, and, will, and, and will bring many benefits to um, the, the local community. Um, with regard to the various assessments that have been undertaken, there's been some suggestion that um, the site is of high landscape sensitivity. Um, now, as I've said, this landscape isn't designated. Um, there's nothing to suggest. And Ms. Marsh said herself that it um, is no more than an ordinary landscape. Um, it um, is one that... Uh, we see uh, as part of the landscape character assessment in landscape character assessment terms as part of the, um, the River Cam Valley landscape character area which stretches all the way down to um, Saffron Walls and Newport um, and, um, and it's, it's sort of accepted as part of that um, assessment process. Now, um, the assessments that have been carried out, they, I believe, consider development on the site in terms of built development across the whole site because without any master plan to consider, it's very difficult for, for anyone to anticipate how 5,000 homes might be accommodated within a landscape. Now, um, yes, we have a rolling landscape. Um, we had a, a plan submitted um, just yesterday um, indicating where the, the ridge lines are and the valleys are. Um, that's no surprise. You've been to the site. Um, you've seen it. 
Um, but these um, these ridges and valleys, you know, do have a um, do have a role to play um, in terms of um, the way the site um, is is laid out and how the green infrastructure can work well with the built development and allow it to be um, duly incorporated into that landscape context. And we've shown how um, with additional um, woodland planting, with um, additional um, food production within that green infrastructure um, and recreational um, benefits, that um, the development um, can be um, accommodated within that landscape context. Whilst ultimately this is a chalk landscape, in actual fact, when one, and that might be at national character level, it's... Um, it's, it, it's described. When one looks at the more, the, the more, the more detailed level, the, the East of England regional um, character um, assessment, for example, we can see that we are, we are actually within um, the, the wooded um, valley farmlands uh, landscape character area, and woodland is very much a, um, a feature of that character area. So we're not introducing features or wouldn't be introducing um, you know, features that would be alien to this landscape at all. Um, we have a number of ancient woodlands within the area. Um, we have you know, a number of you know, trees within hedgerows and, uh, and other features which would um, you know, be very appropriate within the green infrastructure as, we, um, as we've laid out. And in actual fact, um, I've um, met myself with um, Ben Smeaton, um, the, the landscape architect, um, w with the council, and, um, and he is you know, very accepting of the mitigation um, strategy that we um, currently have put forward, um, and um, is, is feels comfortable that um, that, that has um, um, is an appropriate way in which to um, to lay out the um, the development as shown. So um, the. Just one further point, just um, sort of picking up, um, I suppose, the final sort of fundamental with regards um, the site location and um, settlement on valley, um, sort of the, the valley bottoms as opposed to the, um, the higher ground. Um, the site itself is still very much within the River Cam Valley and... Um, Whilst we are on rising ground, um, we're not on the, 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 the higher ground of the, um, of the, um, of, of the ridgelines to the south. And I think that is something to be noted. Also, that not all settlement within the district is within the valley um, either. There are um, a number of settlements within, um, within the district. Um, Great Chisel to the, um, the west, for example, which is located on the higher ground. So this isn't something that hasn't come before. Um, it's not new um, to the district um, in terms of its in terms of its location. So the um, just finally then um, on the uh, the ability for the site to accommodate constraints. Um, you particularly raised a point with regard to the heritage. And um, we, as you know, we have the, the scheduled monument on the site. Um, as you, well, as we've heard many times today, um, the way the master plan is set out, um, we have a lot of capacity within that master plan to accommodate you know, the built elements um, within a broad area across um, the, um, the site, whether it be a, bl a bloody lined um, you know, area or an actual red line master plan. If um, it is agreed that um, there is more sensitivity than we consider 
to um, to those assets, or if indeed it's found um, through more detailed investigation that there are other um, assets of some importance on the site, we have no reason to believe um, that they could not be accommodated within um, a master plan um, of the um, of the scale of 5,000 homes that we're that we're looking at. Um, as you will have seen from that. Um, from that vision, um, you know, we have um, a lot of a lot of open space, a lot of green space um, that can be. Um, we, we've shown a master plan that, that, that develops in, in in one way, and 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 we believe that works. Um, but we um, could develop it in, in in a different way, and no doubt we'll have to. Um, it, that master plan will need to evolve and change. Um, we'll need to go through the growth, and we'll need to go through the process of um, establishing a variety of um, constraints. I'm sure um, across that site, as more detailed um, work comes comes forward, and that's just the nature of the iterative um, design process. And um, yeah, that will flex, I'm sure. But there's um, no reason for us to believe that we couldn't accommodate it um, within, um, within, within the boundaries um, that are set out. I'll now just pass over to my, co- um, my colleague. Can I just ask Morgan. you a quick question? Yes. So presumably there's some sort of limb. We've seen sort of how rural it is, and the, the diagram that's been provided shows the, um, the contour lines. Presumably there's some limitation in terms of where, for example, playing pitches could go within the within the landscape because of the nature of it obviously you wouldn't want a football pitch on a on the side of a hill <laughs> no indeed and you know in any site with of this nature you need to um you know accommodate the playing pitches within the you know either the um the lower um valley um, um or on, on on the upper plateau so in actual fact in the current master plan we have a um a cricket pitch proposal um down on the um on the southern edge of the site and the main playing fields are up on the um up on the higher ground where the public will benefit from you know the fantastic views that they will have um, across that um, across that valley landscape, which at the moment aren't available. But it does re- it does reduce. You can't just think we'll just put on a level site. You might think you know we'll just put the football pitch here. It reduces the um, the availability of or flexibility of the site to some degree. That, that reduces the flexibility of some of, of the site to some degree. Yeah. But we have a lot of flat land as well right. as a lot of okay. steeply sided land. Um, and there are other way, uh, there are a, a variety of ways within which one can provide recreational benefits on steeply siding areas, um, whether that be you know sort of I don't know mountain biking tracks and that yeah, sort of parks. thing. Um, exactly. Um, so we believe that there's you know, plenty of spaces in that to accommodate whatever is needed, um, either within the steeply sided areas or the um, the flatter. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. Matthew Morgan, EDP Heritage. Um, There's just a couple of points I wanted to pick up. The first one, I think, has been covered um, by my colleagues, so I will uh, only briefly skim over that, and that is to just reiterate um, the position that Mr. Flickcroft also uh, set out, which is that the uh, evidence for the archaeology on the site uh, does not suggest that we're dealing with an unusual collection of remains or remains of very high significance or that there is uh, a presence of of widespread and nationally important remains. And I think we would be in a really remarkable position at a later date when evaluation is undertaken to find that we're dealing with in excess of 200 hectares of nationally important remains that nobody knew was there. Um, This leads on to my second point as well, which is that based on the evidence that we have, if we do have um, some instances of uh, nationally important remains it's most likely to be uh, in pockets. Oh, sorry, in pockets. 
something about that word. Um, <laughs> overpronouncing my P, maybe. Um, so, moving from from that area that still needs clarification to uh, what we do know about the nationally important archaeology on the site, represented by the Roman Temple uh, scheduled monument. Uh, of course, the, the consideration in terms of the uh, allocation of the site will be its effect on the significance of the temple. And I'd just like to read just one line from the scheduling information uh, by Historic England on the, uh, uh, on the Roman temple, which is that all Romano-Celtic temples with surviving archaeological potential are considered to be of national importance, which suggests, therefore, that the remains of the temple is of paramount importance with the setting making a, a secondary contribution to that. And therefore, there's another point which has yet to be raised by Historic England either today or in their evidence, and that is that, the, uh, that they have placed that Roman temple on the Heritage Risk Register, which is to say that they recognise that the modern ploughing of those remains are not conducive to its continued conservation. Um, as we have discussed, we have enough room on the site to preserve those important elements of the setting between the town and the temple, but also to arrest the damage that's being done by ploughing and provide a betterment uh, by putting it into long-term sustainable management and providing better public appreciation and interpretation. Considering that the site is mostly uh, arable land, it stands to reason, therefore, that that same concept uh, carries across to any hitherto unrecorded nationally important archaeological remains that it can only be a benefit for those to be also taken out of the plough and um, to be uh, better interpreted for public appreciation and enjoyment. I'm just going to ask um, for the seats to be vacated and then we'll quickly turn to transport and then a couple of words literally on the trajectory. Um, so we so it's transport next, then the trajectory. If you don't, if you don't mind. Oh, <laughs> oh this is fun. Um, so sitting to my immediate right, you'll rem remember him perhaps from yesterday is Mr. Elliot Page from Peter Brett. Who, um, if you can focus on. Mr. Noon's six points to the extent that there's something that you need to or wish to add, please. Thanks very much indeed. Off you go. Thank you very much. Um, with regard to the six points, the six points I have down are points on access, Stumps Cross modelling, McDonald's roundabout, A505 certainty, train station and connections to it, and sustainable transport slash BRT. So I'll take them one by one. Um, Accesses, essentially Essex, largely dealt with this. Um, it is incorrect to say there is one point of access. There are two points of access, albeit it, it is acknowledged they're onto the same road corridor. Um, but I think it needs to be considered this isn't a historic market town. Um, there are many new developments that come forward, um, Water Beach New Town being one uh, in the adjacent district, where only two points of access are proposed for 10,000 units. Um, I think the key there is, is it technically sound and I think the statement of common ground that has been entered into by the transport stakeholders confirms that it is. 
Um, Stumps cross modelling, there was a question mark about whether further work would be required. Um, what I can confirm is that the work undertaken between PBA, Highways England and ACOM, um, consultants for Highways England, was forensic. Um, yes, there will be further work required at transport assessment stage, but in terms of the design, the DMRB compliance and the modelling, that was an exhaustive exercise and that is reflected that they are signatories in the Statement of Common Ground. Um, the McDonald's roundabout, white, young, green, largely covered that, I think, by way of further context. Yes, there is an interim scheme that has been identified that would support growth at North Uttlesford. Um, in the longer term, clearly that may become something else subject to the 505 study, but it dem does demonstrate a soundness to the allocation in terms of getting early development away. Um, the 505 more generally and the uncertainty or certainty over it. Um, again, I don't think it is unusual that local plans come forward with strategic studies underway or in train. Um, through our statement to Common Ground and the White Young Green evidence, we have demonstrated that early development can be achieved. We do acknowledge in the longer term strategic improvements are needed, but those studies are to be commissioned and there is genuine momentum and allocated funding to deliver a solution. Um, Stations, I think there is a separate question later on, um, but we are beneficiaries of the fact that we got two points of access to the rail network. Whitt Whittlesford Parkway is subject to a master planning exercise, and again, that has momentum and funding identified to support better bus rail interchange and greater carrying capacity for passengers. Um, Great Chesterford Station, we have identified within the IDP funds to deliver improvements and connections to it. Um, the final point is sustainable travel options, and yes, it is acknowledged that in the, in the short to medium term, a conventional bus strategy is proposed. There is an identified subsidy within the IDP. Um, it is caveated within the IDP that it's subject to viability, but I, I think I would say that any uh, infrastructure is subject to viability, but I think in this case there is an absolute commitment that a public transport and bus strategy will be delivered and those monies are in our cost model. Um, I think it's also, also worth making the point with regards to the BRT. Um, we, are, uh, we, we benefit from the fact that the combined authority just across the border is proposing to bring a new Cambridge autonomous metro or the CAM system down to a new park and ride site the other side of the A11. Um, we have identified within the IDP and within our own cost model £10 million which uh, sits as with the descriptor of a cycle bus connection to Grant Park. Now that money could and should be um, allocated to providing a connection into that CAM system subject to um, further studies being undertaken and the A505 study reporting exactly how that network will work. So there is money set aside within the, uh, within the IDP to deliver something more than just the conventional bus system which is also separately costed. Um, I think that is probably... Those are the six points. Those are the six points. Jolly good. Well, let's, let's move before Thank we, before we uh, try your patience too much longer. Um, we just move finally in relation to the trajectory or need to introduce yourself. Uh, just a couple of points because I think a lot of this trajectory work comes from work which you've done on behalf of Grosvenor in, in any event. So introduce That's yourself fine. and make your couple of points. Thank you. I am Guy Kaddish from Bidwells representing Grosvenor. I've just got one point of clarity. Sorry, let me move across so you can see me. Um, <laughs> I've got one point of clarity on the trajectory and then two points from matters raised today that I think you'll find helpful. Um, so just on clarity, um, Stephen Miles of the Council this morning um, talked about the Council's updated trajectory 
Um, and just to clarify, that does reflect our updated trajectory that was submitted in our matter eight statement at appendix five. So those two trajectories are aligned and the evidence behind that trajectory again sits in that appendix five of our matter eight statement. Then on the two points from today, Mr. Belton raised a comment and a concern about the overlapping nature of the local plan DPD and planning process and whether that is realistic. Um, and that overlapping process is the premise of the trajectory. That is the premise of the statement of common ground that we have with the authority as to how that trajectory will be accomplished. And it's important to know that we as Grosvenor are geared up, resourced and ready for that program as part of that agreement with the authority. On a second and related point, that the speed of delivery of development is so often linked to the resources of a council and how quickly they also can, can progress a development. And it's material to note that in March this year, central government awarded Uttlesford Council £750,000 through its Garden Communities programme, um, ring-fenced for Uttlesford to support its delivery of the Garden Communities within Uttlesford, of course, including North Uttlesford Garden Community. And as tangible evidence, I think, to then the attitude of the authority to those resources and its approach to the garden communities. We heard in week one that they've already employed an additional and dedicated member of staff to the planning team now focused on those DPDs and the garden communities, which I think is a very helpful early indication of the committed and positive approach of the council to that trajectory. Thank you. Thank you. Just on a point of detail, I'm told now by Mr. Miles it's three members of staff. I thought it was three, but then I maybe I thought we had this discussion between ourselves earlier. Was it one or three? And I said I thought, I thought I'd read three somewhere. Yeah. There's <laughs> obviously been some recruitment since. Uh... Do, you want to, do you want to? Which one wants to speak first? It's... Should I start? Yes. Uh, thank, thank you, Janet Martin from Sawston Parish Council. Uh, just uh, a couple of uh, comments. One, one on landscape. Yes, we we noted in our submission the concerns of the landscape officer and the, the fact that the site's on rising ground within a relatively flat landscape, and it's clearly visible from rising land to the east of Stapleford, a distance of just over eight kilometres. So that's in our in our submission. Uh, can I just go on and say something about um, transport and the impact of developments around, around our, our village? As I started to say yesterday, we are a, a large village, uh, predicted 8,500 pop population. We're already acutely aware of significant uh, traffic issues surrounding the village, particularly A1301 and the uh, a505 and the fact that this development will only increase the traffic pressures ar around our village the mcdonald's roundabout has been mentioned several times plus also the junction with the with the m11 particularly at, at, at peak times and this is only going to be exacerbated as well by other developments around our, our village which include those to the north the distribution center at um, Dales Manor, developments there, sites H1B and C, which will increase housing. The um, 
redevelopment of Unity Campus and Iconics Park to the south of our village and in Pampersford Parish. And then the west, uh, the development of the Huawei Research Centre, which has spaces for its over uh, 420 cars in their current planning application, and that will increase pressures coming down to the M11. Um, and then I think my colleague will say something about the Welcome Campus uh, and the Agritech Park. Um, I mentioned yesterday the, the concerns about Wigglesford Station, which I think you'll come to in, in a little while. And just to summarise that, uh, I think the concerns of residents in, in Sawston, which we get constantly at our Planning and Environment Committee, are to do with um, you know, future development impact on infrastructure. And uh, we haven't mentioned in discussions so far air, air quality impact on that and, and health. Uh, so thank you. Hand over to my colleague, Thank Councillor you. Bard. Yes, uh, with, with your permission, I'd like to address questions five and six. Is that okay? Um, we will get to those later. I mean, we've touched on stations. What's it? Yes. Six. Yeah, we'll, we'll deal with it. And then while, while you've got the mic. Okay, right. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so just, 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 just like to say a little, uh, little bit more about the, um, about the stations we've been discussing. And I think it's, I think it's instructive to look at the um, station usage statistics, which are, which, which are available from the um, OR. And the latest figures just for um, 2017 to 18 show 538,972 uh, 5, for Whittles. Uh, 1,011,626 for uh, Audley End, and, uh, but only uh, uh, for Great Chesterford, 109,116. And I think that says very, uh, gives, gives a very, very clear indication of the, of, the, of the current constraints at Great Chesterford. Now, I've heard the developers' comments, and it would seem to me that the only way of adequately addressing this problem is to take the approach that South Cambridgeshire District Council has done at Waterbeach and to, and to construct a complete new station away from the line of the existing one. Uh, I haven't seen that suggested in any of the documents. Uh, it, it, it certainly seems perverse to write to them um, uh, to, to rely on Whittlesford, which um, is, uh, has a uh, <coughs> without existing development over the last 10 years has shown an average of, of um, uh, <coughs> an estimated 31% increase in usage over the last uh, over the last 10 years. So. North Uttlesford would add to that, and of course access to Whittlesford put yet further uh, pressure on the A, on the A1301, which is um, uh, already, according to your transport to the transport assessment, operating at 18% over capacity, and also the A505 and the famous McDonald's Junction. Uh, the, uh, yes, there are, proposed, there are improvements proposed at Whittlesford, but that really will only cope for, uh, for existing usage and plan growth from existing developments. So I think that's all I want to say about stations. So I do want to move on to, the, um, uh, to say, say a little bit about, um, uh, about the um, welcome proposals. I mean, as, as, as we'll all be aware, there is currently an application uh, which is uh, numbered S4329-18OL uh, outline application which was submitted on the 4th of December to South Cambridgeshire District Council and is likely to be determined in the next two or three months. Uh, the, uh, during, the, um, uh, during the scoping application, uh, South Cam's originally suggested that um, North Uttlesford should be taken into account that, uh, t um, 
proposal should be taken into account. That was the letter dated the 17th of July 2018, which is filed with the documents for uh, S2209 18E2 on the, on the um, South Cam's website. But that opinion was subsequently changed. Uh, uh, before, the, uh, before this present um, local plan was, was submitted on the 4th of December 2018. Uh, and that, uh, uh, the, the, the letter for that is also uh, the um, letter... Uh, Sorry, on the 19th of November, the um, application was submitted on the 4th of December. And so, uh, so, so, so um, uh, uh, North Uttlesford is, is, is scoped out now of the, Whittles, of the, um, uh, of the um, welcome application. And I think this is, this, this is, a, considerable, this is a considerable concern because uh, if that application is approved, which as I say, it, 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 it will be within the next two or three months, well, it could be within the next two or three months, uh, that completely throws back all the traffic all, 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 all the traffic assessments on the 1301 and uh, local roads arising local roads arising for that there is also the issue of, of um, the, the application also includes uh, uh, 1500 dwellings on the site for their employees and uh, the question then arises of how that development would interact with uh, North Uttlesford Garden Community, which is uh, which should be divided from it only by the width of the um, A11. Uh, I think, I, I think it's extremely unfortunate that development in this area is being addressed in the way it is and uh, not through a cross-border uh, uh, area action plan or DPD as was done on the Cambridge fringe between South Cambridgeshire and Cambridge City. Thank you. Thank you, Councillor Bard and uh, Councillor Martin. Do you want to, do you want to address the... Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, we've got a bit to... Um, if, if it's an appropriate time, we'll that's go fine. Back to the comments that were made, uh, uh, yeah, a few break. moments ago, yeah. Um, so, uh, sorry, Jenny Gay from Chris Blanford Associates on behalf of Uttersford Council. So uh, there was reference to our study, um, the appraisal that we carried out in 2017 uh, from Ms. Marsh, I believe. So I just wanted to run through. Um, so as with the heritage work... Yeah. Uh, no, landscape... Do you want to speak up a little bit? Sorry. Sort of people... As with the heritage work, the landscape and visual appraisal considered the site extents and the principle of a new settlement. It did not consider the master plan proposal that Ms Marsh referred to. Um, that's completely separate. Uh, the purpose of the appraisal was to identify the landscape and visual constraints and opportunities of the site in order to inform plan-making and future decision-taking. The appraisal identifies the sensitivity of the landscape and visual resource associated with the site and provides high-level guidance in how development could be accommodated on the site. Um, it's been produced to inform the development of policy in the local plan and um, the text that has been submitted as Regulation 19 takes account of all of this um, in the policy and the justification text. Um, we would expect as part of proposals coming forward, further work to be carried out using uh, the county and district landscape character assessments from 2003-2006, as well as the more up-to-date appraisal that's being carried out as part of the local plan work. It's not something that's proportionate at this stage. Um, and obviously, we've heard from Grosvenor, and they have started to carry out that detailed work, and that's part of their evidence that they provided you with. Okay. 
Okay, I think Thank Mr Gillan wants to continue. That's fine, yes. <laughs> yes, very briefly, I'd just refer to what the Council set out on Matter 7, Paragraph 2.5, on how landscape informed the plan-making process. And the paper makes clear that we took account of uh, Document 708.1, and it states that no, what we state is no overriding impediment to development was found in that document. Then we further refer to the CBA work. In terms of the four criteria, obviously the first does say that there are an, the area is not subject to any national designations and is relatively unconstrained. There is reference on landscape sensitivity to that being high, but I think the, the key part is um, C in that paragraph where it says it is desirable to limit development. It doesn't say it, development should be precluded. And then it notes the need for strong commitment to good design and to ensure mitigation takes account of opportunities. It's also worth referring to the Council's background strategy paper, 1400.1, uh, page 8, where we set out in a little bit more detail um, how that was, how landscape was taken into account in the uh, plan making process, and we refer in a little bit more detail to uh, the mitigation. Uh, and there's um, several uh, bullet points that we note there. New development. Citing design and landscaping proposals to, to the landscape features and characteristics. Given the landscape, its sense of place and local distinctiveness, new development minimises adverse impacts on the settings of culturally important landmarks, the use of appropriate building and hard and soft landscape materials, and it goes on and on. So, and obviously we've heard uh, from the uh, promoter. Uh, on their more detailed work and that, that's been undertaken. And of course there would be uh, further uh, more detailed work in the uh, DPD and at planning application stage. Thank you. Can, can I just add as a reference, because uh, Mr Gillam gave you a reference, but it's not quite the right reference because it's a cumbersome document. Document 1400.1 has a number of appendices. It's Appendix 4 of that. And I'm afraid it's a wretched appendix because what it does is it goes through each of the garden communities that were there being assessed and each one is, I'm afraid, individually paginated. So the page 8, which is the right page that you need to look at, it's a page 8 that relates to the North Uttlesford pages. The saving point about that appendix is that the garden communities are there assessed in alphabetical order so if you flick through, you'll get a series of pages eight, but there's only one page eight that relates to North Uttlesford, and it's there. So I'm, I'm apologise for that, and we can't give you an easier reference, uh, but uh, you will there see set out that it recognises uh, the uh, landscape impact that's summarised in the uh, CBA report and the sensitivities that are there recognised. But what it then goes on to do is to give, as it were, a prescription of how that should be then dealt with through the plan-making process. It gives indications of what factors should be taken into account as the design moves forward. And what we've tried to do 
through the local plan policy framework is to reflect those recommendations in the criteria for the policy and obviously further work will then follow with the, the DPD stage. Thank you, that's helpful. Do you want to come back on any of the comments about how is this, the cross-border impacts of the, and the genome um, welcome? I mean, there, there is... Um, we will get to it as well further down the agenda. It's yeah, I mean, th th there is an issue about the welcome genome, which is, uh, it, it is an outline application. Um, in fact, at the time that the uh, original uh, White Young Green Transport Study was undertaken, it wasn't even an application. But what they did, uh, which is consistent with uh, the, I'm sure, you know, web tag being guidance which informs uh, the approach to transport assessment work uh, for larger transport assessments. Uh, what they did was they created, as I think uh, Mr. Gregory referred to them this morning, what's called the uncertainty log, which is where you take account of prospective proposals. Uh, and in simple terms, and it's not quite this simple when you do it, but in simple terms, things which are commitments are things that you would take into account in your uncertainty log as forthcoming developments. And commitments are typically things which are either an allocation in a development plan or a planning permission. Uh, but what is not a commitment would be something which is either not yet a planning application or is an undetermined planning application. And so in accordance with the guidance and the methodology, something like the genome proposal wouldn't register for the purposes of inclusion in the white young green transport assessment, certainly not at the time that it was done, because it wasn't even an application, but even today, or indeed tomorrow or whatever, it wouldn't register in an uncertainty log because it's not a commitment at present. The time for that to be taken into account would be when it becomes a commitment and then obviously at the next stage and if that is uh, a planning permission that is granted by South Cambridgeshire at the next stage of plan making obviously when one does then further work you would expect to take into account what are then the commitments it doesn't follow that that will necessarily be an addition because obviously if you're rebasing the time that you're looking at what are commitments you will look at what are commitments at that point of time and some things may have fallen away by that time as well as other things will come into the frame. So obviously you have to, you have to refresh what you're looking at and look at things in the light of the guidance but looking at it at the time of the, as it were, the new base date of your study. Yeah, and that gives potential problems. It's sort of a perfect storm almost. If they, the genome's not considering this plan allocation and, and, and this plan doesn't consider them, but the two significant developments and neither makes provision, if you like. So if the genome's not got any provision um, for road improvements or money towards road improvements, it, it, but they could both sort of almost clash and <laughs> create a, a problem. Has that been considered? Well, it, it's been considered in terms of that there is, as you say, there is a potential uh, for uh, things to, in a sense, fall between between two stools. Uh, Sorry, you, can see, you want to add something? Do you want to complete yours? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but uh, I say what we have done reflects, as it were, the conventional approach to assessment of matters, and it will be picked up 
if, and it is at the moment an if, if that planning application is granted, and you know, one can't at the moment make that assumption. It's not in South Cambridge's development plan as a proposed allocation. So it doesn't have, as it were, any um, uh, pedigree. It, it's simply a, a proposal that a, a developer has put forward. Mr. Augie? Yeah, yes, Tony Augie. <clears throat> I made a personal representation, but I should say that I am a member of Sawston Parish Council, okay. and, and I would support the comments that uh, the two representatives have made. Um, at, at a recent public um, meeting, uh, the chairman of South Cambridgeshire District Council's planning committee uh, stated that he expected the genome planning application to go to the planning committee in South Cams at its September meeting. So in a sense that is fairly close to determination whether it's approved or not. That issue should be clarified in the not too distant future. When we look at all the developments which have either got approval or are in the process of seeking approval on that. They're a very large number in a very small space. One that has got approval was the Unity Campus, which is just north of the McDonald's roundabout, and that was for a development. In the planning application, it stated 1,400 jobs. Construction is, that was approved. Construction is well underway, and figures are 1,500 jobs, 2,000 jobs even, are now being talked about. Addressing the transport issues from that proposal supported developments at the Whittlesford roundabout, the McDonald's roundabout. The Genome Campus proposals also indicate development improvements at the McDonald's roundabout, as did the Agritech um, planning application, which has just been through an appeals process with South Cams, and we're waiting for the decision on that appeal. But that also suggested improvements at the McDonald's roundabout. So almost every major development has either been proposed, approved, or put forward as focused almost solely on the McDonald's roundabout, and I believe that that carries too much weight on that roundabout, and I remain unconvinced by the transport proposals. Thank you. It's just coming up to um, five to one. Do you, do you, how long do you think? Five minutes. I think I can be quite brief. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah Pretty, Historic England. Um, I just want to comment briefly on Mr. Morgan's points, um, which relate to the um, evidential value of the scheduled monument, um, its setting, and, and its future management. Um, and I'd like to start off by quoting paragraph 132 of the framework, which says that when considering the impact of a proposed development on the significance of a designated heritage asset, great weight should be given to that asset's conservation. The more important the asset, the greater the weight should be. Significance can be harmed or lost through alteration or destruction of the heritage asset or development within its setting. As heritage assets are irreplaceable, any harm or loss should require clear and convincing justification. And this applies not only, obviously, to, uh, to the Roman Temple uh, Scheduled Monument, but to all the other designated 
assets which would be affected by the, by the proposed allocation. Um, so the, um, the, the, the physical preservation of the scheduled monument does not signify that the proposals won't cause um, its significance to be adversely impacted by, um, uh, you know, um, uh, ad- adverse impacts on, on, its, on its setting. Um, now, it, it's true, and it's, it's certainly true that taking the, um, the scheduled monument out of the plough would bring an improvement in its condition, and that would be a heritage benefit, and there would be other heritage benefits from the way in which it, how, how it, if it were managed for public access. Um, but those, those do also have to be set against um, the resulting harm, which would be caused to its significance from um, impacts on its setting, adverse impacts on its setting. Um, and finally, I just I, I think it's a matter of information, really, and um, um, uh, which is that although um, the scheduled monument is on our Heritage at Risk register, it's currently published on the list, um, it has been, as have all ploughed sites, been subject to um, a desk-based assessment which we use to determine the vulnerability to damage for monuments in um, agricultural and cultivation. And in fact, the site was assessed as being moderate and vulnerable. And by all other measures, it would not normally have been included on the register. And its continued inclusion was due to, uh, was triggered by some historic episodes of illicit metal detecting. So, um, so it is, it, it's most certainly on the, on the register, but I'm just explaining that, that it's not quite as black and white as it might appear. And that in terms of, um, uh, of uh, manage, management of its, of its future condition, um, there would be other ways, potentially other ways, to achieve improvements, such as through countryside stewardship, where um, uh, minimum tillage or direct drilling um, could... Uh, have, have the potential to allow its, its, its um, preservation in an agricultural regime but without um, uh, significant further erosion. Thank you. Thank you. Did you want to comment as well, Ms. Mark? Please, if I may, Debbie Mack from Historic and there are a couple of other things to pick up um, from other bits of, um, of evidence that have been given around the room. Um, I, th- I think I'm right in saying that um, both the Council and also Great Chesterford uh, implied that um, my colleague Debbie Priddy had said that the undiscovered archaeology was um, all potentially nationally significant. I-, I think it would be fair to correct that. No. Yeah, no. exactly. So I think Debbie made it clear that it was some. Um, I think um, I'm right in saying that Grosvenor... Uh, were uh, saying that this landscape is not unusual in heritage terms. I think Debbie's already explained that that is not the case. Um, I think, uh, so those are two sort of items that I wish to correct. Um, We've heard reference to uh, the analogy of Great Chisel as a, a settlement on the high plateau, and it's true to say that it is. Um, but I think there is a huge difference in the scale of that settlement. So I think there's a, uh, in, 20, in the 2011 census, I think it's 698, uh, the population there, perhaps 250 dwellings maybe, um, very different to 5,000 dwellings. Um, so I, I'm not sure that's a fair analogy. Um, we've heard about the government funding for 
and the Gargan communities, and it is true that Uttlesford have secured that. And, um, however, we'd just like to draw your attention to what the, um, the MHCLG uh, prospectus actually says in relation to those um, announcements. It says, the, government annou the announcements of government assistance does not in any way prejudge the planning process. So we're not to assume that just because that funding is in place that um, all planning issues are dealt with. It still needs to be firmly considered as part of the local plan process. Which leads me on to thinking about the proportionate evidence base for a local plan. Um, and we look um, to the MPPF paragraph 169, which talks about the issue of predicting the likelihood of currently unidentified heritage assets, which is how we started this morning. And that is a requirement of the evidence base. And then we go on to consider um, proportionality in terms of evidence for local plans. And to that, our attention is drawn to the advice notes from Historic England, the one on uh, local plans, GPA1, and the one on site allocations in local plans, uh, HEAN3, um, both of which set out very clearly the evidence that is needed to select sites and make it very clear that harm should be avoided in the first instance. And I think that's um, where we come back to, that that stage um, hasn't been adequately addressed in this local plan process. Um, we're not against new settlements per se. In fact, only last week I led a training event for our organisation on new settlements and talking about the ways in which they can provide a very useful way of contributing to the delivery of housing. But they need to be in the right place and appropriately planned, and that is what we're talking about today. It is um, noticeable that the very early evidence, the brief HIA, um, was um, so clear uh, in uh, the um, assessment of heritage impact when it said, I must advise, however, that based on the information available at present, it is unlikely that the proposed scheme could be achieved without causing significant harm to the significance of the numerous heritage assets detailed above. And that is where we come back to. Thank you. Thank you. So it's now five past one. So if we take a, a lunch break, if we can try and be back for two, if it's a little bit after, I know everybody has to go get a sandwich and things, and that's fine. But if we can aim for two o'clock, we've obviously got lots to do. And when we come back, we'll try and work out a plan for dealing with the, um, the programme. Okay, thank you. <laughs>